Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. Trump with no due process, with no evidence just seven days before 
the end of his term for myself and many people around the district. That was that was the last straw, right? We had seen Anthony Gonzalez cheer on lockdowns, cheer on mask mandates. Uh, he votes with AOC 40% of the time. Uh, you know, we've seen him vote to send hundreds of billions of dollars overseas to, and, and to keep our, our, our troops and foreign interventions permanently. Um, and I think this impeachment vote just showed who Anthony Gonzalez truly is. Uh, and so I think, so again, for so many of us around the district, this was just the last straw, and it became very apparent that we needed to replace him with some true conservative leadership. We were looking for, I know, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Jack Labardi. He's, he's running against uh, Adam uh, Kinzinger. And so hopefully we're, getting, we're going to get some more on to the show. So we're definitely looking at people who are, you know, from the people, by the people, instead of, you know, for the people, by the politicians, or by the politicians, for the peop- uh, politicians, which does exactly, I think, describes folks such as Gonzalez and uh, Kinzinger, for that matter. So certainly that. Um, so you, you actually answered my, my next question, so I'll just go over uh, to the next. Um, now, you know, looking up your website, and, you know, you have a number of issues there, and, you know, read through them. We'll, we'll go, go through some of them in depth. I'd like to and have some questions. But of all the, the issues that you see out there that's important today, you know, focusing on, you know, folks, you could check out his website at SchultzForCongress.com, uh, you know, to get more information. But of all those issues you have there, what would you say, at least at this point in time, is the most important to you and, and the most important to America? Well, I think it's ensuring what we've seen take place over the last year and a half can never happen again, uh, restoring and defending our, our God-given constitutional rights. So when we look at what the government sees power to do, to close our businesses, to shutter our houses of worship, to lock healthy Americans in their homes and force us to wear a disgusting piece of cloth over our face, and, and many will now try to forcefully uh, inject us with a vaccine against our own objections, I think we need to pass federal legislation that is going to ban state, local, federal governments, uh, again, government entities from, from doing all of those things uh, to private businesses, to our houses of worship, uh, and overreaching uh, what is their constitutional authority. And so essentially all of our issues that we're facing right now come down to getting the government out of our lives and securing our individual liberties. Um, and so whether it's passing federal legislation, again, to, to stop this lockdown madness, these mandates, these, these mandatory vaccines and passports, uh, whether it's to take on big tech and hold them financially accountable instead of just giving them a slap on the wrist in these Senate panels, um, it really comes down to looking at who we are as a Republican Party and who we are as what, what is our conservative movement. The conservative movement and what is our sole responsibility? Our sole responsibility is to defend the individual liberties of the individual, of the, of the people. Uh, and again, and you hit the nail right on the head, is we need people running for office who are citizen candidates, citizen legislators who know what it means to live and work in our communities and aren't, aren't beholden to special interests and big money uh, and, and are going to just be renegades against the establishment. Uh, and so, our legislation, our, our, we have so many priorities. So we have a laundry list of, of issues that we need to address. Uh, but first and foremost, it's securing our most basic rights that have been stripped from us over the course of, of this COVID madness. 
Yeah, and I was going to save this question towards, you know, some about health care, uh, but I think, you know, you bringing that up is a, is a good segue because you mentioned something, uh, you know, about the, the vaccines. And now some folks are hearing, this is causing some concern, that since the vaccine is free and it's readily available, that some insurance companies are beginning to say that if you were to get COVID, then they wouldn't cover whatever treatments. Let's say you're hospitalized for it. Let's say you just had to take some medications uh, for it. Uh, but some are concerned that some company, you know, insurance companies are going to say, we're not going to cover it because you did not get the, the vaccine. Uh, what type of legislation, if any, if you could, could be proposed to, to stop the health insurance companies from doing this? Well, I mean, when we're addressing healthcare and issues like this, uh, you know, I always believe when it comes to healthcare, the best solution and, and pretty much in any other industry is, is the free market solution. Um, but we should be ensuring that insurance companies can't discriminate on individuals based on their personal healthcare choices. Um, people have many, many legitimate concerns about this vaccine that was very hastily developed that is experimental in many ways that we, we, we cannot know the long-term effects of what this will do to the human body. Um, so there's very legitimate concerns as far as do I want to put this in my body uh, or not, uh, or do I want to pursue other methods to try to keep myself healthy and, and keep myself from uh, experiencing any uh, negative side effects if I do contract COVID. So I think from the legislative side, it wraps into what we're doing with private entities uh, whether it's vaccine passports or these insurance companies trying to uh, twist their language to discriminate, it's, it's essentially respecting individuals' own medical freedoms. Uh, and we need to do that on the insurance side as well and ensure that no, no individual in this country is being discriminated against based on their medical choices. This is a, a, we need to have some bodily autonomy. Uh, uh, it is a very basic right. If you, if you don't have the right to choose what to inject into your body, uh, then you, you have very few rights. Uh, we'll put it that way. So, uh, you know, we would have to address that along with all of the public and private sector entities that are trying to uh, forcefully uh, vaccinate our population uh, against their uh, total, totally, totally reasonable objections. Well, and I always found, I've been finding it ironic that, you have people on the left who, you know, don't want to make a woman carry a baby and have something, as they describe it, not, not people on the right, but they describe it, something inside their body. We don't want something put inside our body that we have to have. And, and they, they really do, in, you know, sconce it in, the, in that verbiage. And yet they're the, the same people <laughs> who want to – basically think people should be forced through whatever means uh, to take this vaccination, whether it's, you know, businesses or the government to, you know, find ways to, if not motivate, then to put people in a position where they have to get the vaccine. Uh, like, like this one I'm talking about, or let's say if someone gets declined for life insurance because they don't have, uh, you know, the vaccine, things of that nature. Or in Ohio, and it's spreading, uh, well, yeah, Ohio with us, I'm sure you're familiar with what DeWine has done. 
you know, with the, the million-dollar lottery, the, that, what they call, there's even a name for it now. Uh, and, yeah. the, and, and, you know, and they're giving, you know, tax, another taxpayer money and then giving scholarships for children, which that's another story about, children, you know, vaccinating children, you know, and, and giving them scholarships. And so, I mean, I, I'm of the mind, I mean, if you really have to promote a vaccine – that's supposed to be for, you know, this deadly, deadly disease, which, you know, 98% survivability rate. Why are they pushing? I mean, we won't get into that, the, the weeds for that tonight, but, I mean, it just makes me wonder why they're pushing it so much. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, what, what else are they going to try, such as with these, these passports, uh, these, these COVID passports? Um, you know, why, why they feel like they have to push this, as you pointed out, pretty much experimental vaccine right and to be if we have a vaccine that's extremely safe and effective i shouldn't have to be bribed or threatened to take it um and 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 the way i look at this is we have to make our own personal choices for example i'm i'm a 26 year old young healthy adult there is virtually zero risk of me having any complications from COVID if I contracted it in the first place. So why would I introduce a new risk to my body when I am not at risk from the current virus? I'm not saying that nothing could ever happen. There's always risks in life and you have to make these, uh, you have to use your higher faculties to, to reason and make decisions based on risk and benefit. Um, and the left, again, they like to trot out these things during, you know, pro- they're pro-abortion uh, advocates of, you know, my body, my choice. But when it comes to a vaccine or when it comes to uh, muzzling yourself with these masks, uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't give a darn if it's your, your body or not. And, and their, their logic never actually holds up really in any realm because, again, my body, my, my choice, scientifically, we know a human fetus is not part of a woman's body. It happens to be its own individual autonomous body that happens to – to spend its first nine months inside of the mother. Um, so it's not, it's not an organ or another body part. And so the left, they've really exposed themselves over the past year and, and, and beyond that. They don't care about your freedom. They don't care about your liberty. They don't care about the ability to make their own life choices. The only thing that they strive for is ultimate authority over your life. And they're, only goal is for you to be 100% compliant. And I think that that's why you mm-hmm. saw them get so angry when people refused, either refused to wear the mask, refused to get the vaccination, is because, not because we're being unsafe or not because we're making them uh, feel unsafe, but because we are going against their demands. Uh, and, and, and they don't make any asks. You know, for example, you know, Joe Biden and, and, and that whole administration, they like to trot out this whole, you know, we need unity in this country, unity, unity. But what do they actually mean by unity? They mean shut up and do what you're told, and then we can have peace. <laughs> uh, and that's essentially the entire uh, philosophy of the left at this point. And so that's why we need to no longer dance around it. Uh, we need to call the left for what they are. They are authoritarians, and it's, and it's not just reserved for the left. We have, we have our governor here in Ohio, Mike DeWine, who's been – uh, an authoritarian tyrant from day one of COVID where we're here in Ohio, where we have a Republican dominated legislator and we're living like Connecticut or California. We just had our mask mandate listed today. Um, and, and, and it's very, 
you know, it's it's hilarious, uh, but also so frustrating when we start to see the again the studies and and Dr. Fauci's emails coming out that show us what most of us should have known from the beginning is that you know masks don't do anything to fight these type of contagious diseases. It was all a political sham from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same with the lockdowns or any of these mandates. They weren't effective in their goal in, in their in their uh, presented goal but they were successful in their actual goal, which was compliance, um, getting people to stop thinking for themselves. Uh, and again, like all of the left policy, it's turning the government into God. The government can save you from diseases. The government can save you from poverty. The government can save you, uh, you know, from uh, your poor life choices. This is not the case. This has never been the case, but that's, that's the left philosophy and how they create a permanent underclass of voters. And that's what, that's the challenge that we're up against trying to break. Um, but uh, 100%, the left is the enemy of freedom. Uh, and that's the situation we find ourselves in in the United States of America today. Well, you know, there's really not anything I can, I can disagree on, <laughs> on that. Um, you know, it's, you know, just, again, I was reading through, through your website and, you know, just, gosh, there's just so much stuff I, I, I could bring up to converse, but I know we got limited limited time here, so I do want to – and I appreciate for, for the hour you give us tonight. But uh, Now, one of the things that's being done, and some would say it's to educate, some say it's to uh, divide our, our country, uh, and this is about the critical race theory. And there's a lot of talk about that now. Um, now, you know, education is generally done by the locales in the state. You know, there's some federal there. But uh, do you believe that the federal government should step in uh, to stop this, you know, that the teaching of you know, this critical race theory, or should that be left up uh, to the states to decide, you know, to work on? I do think the federal government should step in. You know, I'd like to see local governments and state governments act now, um, but – Again, we can't rely on the local governments in California and Oregon, and even here in Ohio where we still can't get anything done. Um, but federal, federally, we should be banning critical race theory because it's ahistorical. It teaches individuals to hate their country on a false narrative, uh, and it teaches children to hate themselves or others based on their skin color. And it's twisted. It's an evil ideology. Um, and again, it's everything from the left is thrown down to divide us. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, we need to pass this legislation to ban it. Uh, but we also need to empower school choice that gets this, pow- this power and money outside of these corrupt teachers unions and, and school districts and allow for uh, parents and students to take control of their own education, their own tax dollars. Um, and, and if you start doing that, you're going to see these public schools stop teaching this garbage, stop teaching this nonsense because parents are going to find other alternatives where their, their, their children are being taught facts are being taught truth are, are, and are getting a far higher quality education. Uh, but as far as critical race theory goes, it's an evil, ahistorical, uh, twisted ideology that the left is trying to push on our children and, and we can't tolerate it. We need to, we need to act, as swiftly as possible to stop our children from being indoctrinated with this nonsense. Well, and that's unfortunately, you know, I mean, I sent my daughter to, uh, you know, the, the private schools, you know, all her, you know, her educational career so far. 
And because I didn't want to have to deal with this kind of stuff, uh, yeah, you know, so, I mean, sending them to private school. Now, my jury's out maybe because I don't have a, 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 an understanding of, of school choice as much as I, you know, I, I, I do or should. Uh, now, through my understanding, you know, for those of us who, who aren't as familiar, I mean, with school choice, is that where they take, you know, tax dollars and they give it to families so they can take their kids to private schools? Or does that just mean that, you know, they don't have to go to a, pri- a public school that's within their district? Well, essentially, the, what we have to strive for is funding students and not funding systems. So what we have is, you know, sometimes there's minimal school choice where within a greater school district, like let's say the Cleveland uh, Municipal School District, you can choose to go to any of the public schools in that district. Um, that's a little bit better than being forced to go uh, to your F-rated school that might be in your own backyard. But for true school choice, what we need ultimately is for the tax dollars and funding to follow individuals. So in, again, school districts like Cleveland, we are paying around $20,000 per student. That's what it costs to educate these children. And they're in F-rated schools where their quality of education has been continually declining. They don't have the resources. They don't have the materials to be successful. And so we have to look at our tax dollars and say, how can we spend these wisely? The best thing to do would be to empower parents to send their children and, and use their tax dollars either towards public schools, private schools, charter schools, or their local communities or homeschooling. Once you do that, it's going to force these F-rated schools, these failing schools, to either improve their quality of education or close because parents aren't going to choose to send their children there when they have the, the power to choose and the power to use that money to get their child a higher quality education. And so that will improve our schools if we empower students and parents uh, above anything else and certainly above these corrupt teachers' unions. And we won't go a lot into the weeds because I do have a, a lot of other stuff I want to uh, cover. But one of the, the – I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the voucher system that's here in Ohio. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've talked to, to many parents who are in – so basically what it is, for those uh, the audience who aren't as familiar with it, is basically if you live in a failing school district, then the uh, – I believe it's the, the city will give – you know, or maybe the state, I don't know which one to be honest, but will give the family these vouchers where they can use these vouchers to go to send their kids to, to uh, private schools. And But you have to been, be living in this failing, you know, for a couple of years, number of years, things of that nature. But the problem that these parents, the parents who are paying for their children out of their own pocket, you know, through their own work and maybe part-time jobs, what these, these, uh, these, these parents are, are facing is that you have children coming in from homes that may not be as diligent on maybe disciplining their children because – they're not working hard. Their complaint is, well, these parents aren't working hard to send my, their kid to school, like working extra hours or working a part-time job, to send their kid to, to private school. But they're just getting money from the government and send, you know, while they're just they're, – they're not working for it. They may even be on, you know, social benefit, you know, or safety net, but they're getting all this money. And so these kids who, unfortunately for them, they may not come from a very disciplined home, so they actually come in and they're disrupting – you know, the schools. 
you know, with, with bad behavior and things of that nature. So that, that's like, to, uh, I mean, how can that be alleviated for those type of events not to happen? Well, I think ultimately you empower the, the parents and students, as I've said, but you have to allow private schools to make their decisions, right? And if they don't want to accept vouchers or accept certain programs, then, then that should be wholly up to them. They're a private institution, and they should, they should be able to do what they see fit. Um, and if that ultimately, um, you know, that will, again, empower the, the parents to send their children to the school of their choice that, that, uh, that, that follows the same principles. So I think ultimately the greatest thing that you can do in, in most circumstances is open things up for choice of the individual and private institutions and entities to make the appropriate decision for their own school, for their own life. Uh, because as we all know, the government, uh, you know, when given the, the choice between the right and wrong decision, they're probably going to choose the wrong decision and make the wrong decision. Uh, <laughs> if, if history has taught us anything. Um, so I think ultimately, again, the more we can empower individuals and private entities, uh, the, the better shape we're going to be in as long as we're always respecting our, our basic individual freedoms. And, uh, you know, again, our schools, private and public, do have to do their jobs in disciplining children as well, right? Uh, you know, we, we have to ensure that children are behaving. We have to ensure that they're not disrupting other students. And that goes for public and private schools. That's, that's a huge problem right now because, uh, unfortunately, we, we aren't having as active you know, family structures supporting children at a younger age. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're leaning on schools or, or after-school programs or the government to, to parent these children. Uh, and and right. that's, not that's, going to make, that's not going to make for a successful society. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. That's, that's for certain. Uh, now on to, to health care, uh, you know, you say, you know, advocate for health care reform. And we've been hearing – well, I mean, one of the things that's been frustrating me the most about Washington, D.C. is we've been probably – and every time an election cycle comes, we always hear about the same topics, and, and health care is one of those. Uh, and you're talking about a health care reform that are patient-centered and consumer-driven. Uh, what, now, for those two ends, so what would you propose to achieve those? Well, we have to come to an understanding of – what regulation does to industries. So if you look at all of the consumer industries in America, almost everything until today in Joe Biden's America has continued to decline in price um, as it pertains to, to average income. The two industries that have skyrocketed are healthcare and education. And what are the two most heavily regulated industries and segments of American society? And so what we've seen since healthcare began to start being regulated back with uh, Medicare uh, uh, in the 60s, we've seen the cost skyrocketed because people have fewer and fewer options. There's fewer outlets now for insurance after Obamacare. And so what we see is the government tightens their grip, squashes competition, and ultimately what we need to do is allow for the greatest amount of competition and options for the consumer. That's going to naturally drive down prices. Because, again, what you've seen is the government intervening and artificially inflating these prices because there's a lack of competition and it's very difficult to enter into these industries. One perfect example is uh, LASIK eye surgery. It's the, most, it's, it's the least regulated 
uh, medical industry uh, or, med or medical procedure that you can get done. There's many outlets that you can get it, and that is the one uh, area of our medical field that has remained stagnant in price as everything else has skyrocketed. So it shows when you put, again, put power in the hands of the consumer to make their own choices, allow the market to, to legitimately be a free market, it's going to drive down prices. We can't – the government and the Democrat, the left and the establishment right, they, they, they regulate a problem and the prices inflate. And instead of saying, oh, well, we made a mistake, what they say is, no, we just didn't regulate it enough. <laughs> That's always their next step uh, to taking on these problems. And so ultimately government regulation in any industry – is going to drive up prices. It's going to push out competition. And that's exactly what's been done in our medical field. And we can't continue to go down a government solution road because we know where that winds up. It winds up with higher price, prices, worse care, uh, and, and, and the individual is the one footing the bill and, and waiting in line and, and not getting the quality care that they, they, they need. Uh, and, and also ultimately the private sector solution in this case is the best, getting the government out of our health care and allowing the free market to actually be the free market. You know, one thing you know, I wanted to uh, bring up is that, you know, as a congressman, as a congressperson, uh, you're going to have people write letters to you. They're going to send emails. Uh, they're going to send, you know, telephone calls. You have conversations with you. And they're going to want to, as we said, you know, be of the people. And what if you got a letter, and this is health care, and this will be the last health care question when we move on, but, uh, one of the things that I've noticed when looking in, in healthcare and what healthcare covers is one thing I've noticed is carriers do not do much for uh, now the government of course wants to be able to pay for abortions, uh, but I don't I haven't seen anything on the opposite end where for people with you know infertility treatments you know infer, uh, so if you had a constituent who would you know write a letter or email or have a call and have that conversation and say. You know, my wife and I, or you know, my husband and I, we really want to you know, be trying to this kid, but it's so costly for us to, for instance, it's like fifteen thousand dollars a treatment. So it's so costly, and many carriers they just don't cover it. They they just don't offer anything. We've we've gone to a lot of places to try to find a place that would, you know, that would cover that, you know, you know, cover this. What would you tell your constituents in that event? Well, I would feel for them in that situation if they're if they're trying to have a child and they're not being successful. But ultimately, we can't ask other individuals, other taxpayers, to cover that type of treatment if we're looking for a government solution. Uh, and ultimately, health insurance. Each company, you know, if if we go with a real free market solution, there's going to be more competitors. There's going to be more options that maybe will cover uh, that type of of treatment. Uh, but ultimately, the government taking money from other individuals to help other individuals start a family, that's not a, that's not a, a road I want to go down, even though I feel for that situation. And, and uh, you know, again, most of these problems, uh, when you talk about something like infertility um, and people trying to seek treatment, you know, if we can bring down the prices through a true free market, Hopefully it won't be needed to, it won't be so costly. It won't, they won't need the government to step in and, and try to, uh, you know, give them some money to, to handle the costs. And hopefully maybe they can lean on their family or their community, um, you know, and the private sector more heavily. Uh, but ultimately I, I don't like the government getting involved in that type of role uh, specifically, especially when it's, it's not a, a life threatening uh, issue. It's, it's sad. It's difficult. 
But I think there's things we can do from the private sector that will bring down those costs and make it more accessible to more people through more insurance companies that are willing to cover that and maybe other medical options that uh, might be more affordable to them after we take the true free market private sector approach to healthcare. And moving on over to energy, as you know, and we all know, but uh, that the government subsidizes the energy industry, and they just do. I mean, you know, gas, oil, I mean, it's subsidized. You had the Obama yep. administration subsidizing, you know, green technologies, things of that nature. We know what happens. Now, now this is for myself, and many believe, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the LaRouche Pact or the LaRouche Foundation, as they believe nuclear fusion is actually the path to energy uh, independence. And I don't know how much you know about you know, nuclear fusion, but if, you know, as when energy part of an energy policy or support for an energy policy, would you consider supporting a fusion-driven crash program uh, to, you know, satisfy our energy needs? And it can be used for other things, but what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, my feeling as a country, the, the way to true energy independence is an all-of-the-above energy strategy, which allows for the most affordable and efficient energy solutions to the consumer. And I am against all energy subsidies, whether it's our our fossil fuels, our renewables. I believe that the free market, I believe that the these uh, these industries should rise and fall on their own. I don't think we should be, you know, like we did in Ohio, bailing out nuclear power plants. I don't believe what we we see a lot on the left by giving millions and billions of dollars to these green energy uh, uh, companies that that go bankrupt (laughs) because they aren't efficient, they aren't effective, and the the technology is just not there. But ultimately, again, all of the above approach. And I think that that's what was done well in the Trump administration was – we did what we do really well right now, which is drill, which is uh, natural gas, uh, and, and our nuclear energy. And I, I think one thing you see on the left that really gives them away is in their uh, kind of green energy farce is that they are for all of these green energies except the, the, the cleanest and most efficient, which is nuclear energy. Um, and so I think nuclear energy does need to be a priority, but – uh, again, I'm not for the government getting involved uh, through subsidies uh, of, of any uh, segment of the en- energy industry. But I do believe that uh, that nuclear power will play a, a very strong role in our future of energy independence. But again, that's going to depend on us as Republicans and true conservatives getting into office where we're not picking winners and losers uh, and we're not shutting down drilling, we're not shutting down natural gla- gas. Uh, exploration uh, and favoring, you know, solar and wind. I'm for, and and I think if you talk to any individual around this country, the one thing that they care about is, is it affordable and does it work? (laughs) And those are the two questions that they're going to ask you. They're not going to care um, as long as we're not destroying the environment, as long as we're not, uh, you know, polluting our communities. You know, people aren't going to care how they get it. They're not going to pick, you know, from clean coal or, natural gas or nuclear fusion or hydroelectric, if they can get it affordably and, and it's efficient and works, they're going to like it. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the way I am. That's the way all, uh, you know, people around this country are. So I'm, I'm for all of the above solution that doesn't favor one industry or another uh, financially. 
Now, I think that's a good, you know, in a way, a good segue to pork spending, or some call it bringing home the bacon for your constituency, <laughs> which uh, it's, it's going to be a very, and you mentioned that on your website, it's going to be a very difficult endeavor because a lot of a lot of politicians use, hey, I'm bringing home the bacon for our our area, you know, for re-election, you know, for the election campaigns to try to get people mm-hmm. to contribute money to them. Um, how would you convince your colleagues? Let's say you're in Congress. So how would you convince your colleagues to, you know, let's say end pork spending um, or to stop it? Uh, because again, this is how they this is how they get elected. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we need people, including myself, that are going to be principled enough to look at these bills where maybe it's 80% of what you want, but 20% of this um, pork spending, of this cycle of garbage that we're constantly force-fed, we need to have the principle to vote no. We need need to have the principle to stand up even when we're getting some of what we want uh, because we're not going to end that cycle until we do. And so we need to get a process started in Congress where we're proposing very clean legislation. If we want to pass spending packages, let's work on those packages. But I don't want spending on figuring out if lizards can run on treadmills attached to my immigration plan. (laughs) And that's simply (laughs) what happens time and time again. And we, we and, and that's that's a real example, by the way. I didn't make that up um, of some of the the taxpayer money that's thrown at these things. Um, yeah. And so I think ultimately it's 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 being principled enough to take that stand, even if it's politically difficult to do so. Because ultimately, if we don't take that stand, we're not going to change anything. We're still going to be lighting taxpayer funding, uh, you know, on fire. And I think ultimately, you know, the people of my district. Uh, and, and I think this would be true of many, many uh, congressional districts around the country, the people are going to be thankful when you're voting against spending their money frivolously. And that's, I think, a real way that you can bring home the bacon for your constituents is not wasting their hard-earned money and putting in place processes that allow them to keep as much as possible uh, and not wasting it on these ludicrous packages that we constantly put together that are filled with unnecessary uh, and oftentimes uh, dangerous spending that undermines our, our interests. So uh, I think it's something you have to take a principled stand on. Well, it's a matter of saying what, there was a, a bill recently that, that that's going through, um, I can't remember if it's the House or Senate, where I mean, it's about it's about China. Where there's the, the argument about this bill is about amendments. <laughs> it's like the Republicans are mad that they can't put as many amendments in as the Democrats. I, I mean, the base of the bill, you know, is supposed to you know protect our like intellectual property things of that nature, you know, against you know against China. And it's actually something that, that the Democrats put forth. Now I haven't read all of the bill, so who knows what they they snuck in there. Uh, but again, that's. I wish we could just have a plain bill where you don't have these amendments, you don't have this pork uh, put in there. Just if the bill is supposed to do this, that's all that's in the bill. What you, the, the name is? Let's cut this tax bill. That's the only thing in, or this thing needs to be, uh, or whatever this bill is meant to pay for. You know, that's all it is. You're not throwing all this other 
other uh, minutiae in there, all this other, you know, pork and, and amendments in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we need to start proposing and passing very clean bills. Um, and, and another thing, too, of this process is we have all this pork spending, we all have all this nonsense where a bill that can legitimately be three to four pages turns into a 5,000-page bill that is, that is presented 24 hours before a vote, and then every individual is told by their leadership to vote yes or no. Um, and that's a problem. We don't have free thinkers, enough individualistic people uh, in office that are going to say, no, I'm not going to vote on a bill that's 5,000 pages long that you just put on my desk that I'm going to vote for tomorrow morning. Uh, that's absurd. Um, and I owe it to the people that I represent to know every word that's in here and uh, know how I'm spending their money <laughs> because ultimately uh, that's the decision that you're making. So you're, you're, you're spot on. We need, to, we need to put forward these clean bills and end this process because it, it, it creates massive corruption. These special interests take advantage. Uh, and, and until you have individuals that stand up to it, it's, it's not going to change. Uh, and we're going to keep going down the exact same road we're going on spending. Uh, and, and otherwise, uh, you know, with, with this, this compromise uh, that, you know, we're compromising ourselves off the edge of a cliff in this country as, as a Republican Party. Uh, and, and so we need strong, principled, conservative, constitutional conservative leadership uh, that's not going to, to bend to the, to the whims of these special interests that uh, really control most of our elected officials. Yeah, that's why I always thought it was kind of ironic. Um, and, and you bring up you know, corruption, if you want to talk a little bit about that. I always found that ironic where, you know, I, I remember one – I'm going to tell a little backstory for me. I'll try to make it quick so I know we're, we're running out of some time here. We're you know, about 18 minutes left. But, you know, I mean, I, was, I don't know why they play uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington around Christmas time. I don't know why they were, but they did. And you know, I realized this movie was made back in the 40s. And – it's, it's talk about government, you know, Washington, D.C., corruption. And I'm like, people realize that there was Washington, D.C. corruption 80 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's, they made a movie, right. movie about it, right? And we finally, in my opinion at least, we finally get a president in, in Trump that's actually trying to Clear, clean the swamp or cesspool. I, I like cesspool better because even swamps have some ecological value to it. But we finally got a president who wants to address corruption in Washington, and the corrupt media, you know, which I say is they're only the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party, was able to convince enough people to hate this guy. So even, even, even Democrats and liberals don't want, you know, at least I, they used to not want, I thought, you know, corruption. But it, it just totally baffled me. We found somebody who wants to address the corruption of Washington, D.C. And, and the, the media, who I think really is the enemy of the people, uh, was able to convince enough people to just absolutely loathe this guy. Unbelievable. But, I mean, if you want to address corruption a little bit, I do want to get um, – you know, get to a few more things here, and then I know we, you know, call, but go ahead. I want to get more about the, the, the actual campaign, but um, if you want to address that real quick. Sure. Uh, well, well, it's funny you mentioned that because Mr. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is one of my absolute favorite movies. Uh, great movie. Everybody should watch it. Um, and it's true. I mean, this, 
this corruption is nothing new. Um, it's something that we've been dealing with for a long time, um, but it's getting bigger and worse as, as time progresses. Um, and, and so, you know, when you look at things like the corruption that we have, there's very easy solutions that will start eating away at that problem uh, that should be common sense, uh, you know, easy legislation to pass, but we know how that goes. And, and that, that, you know, starts with banning all former elected officials from becoming lobbyists. That need, that's, a, that's a pipeline, a direct pipeline from, from Congress to some real serious cash uh, heading up some of these uh, lobbying organizations. And if you cut off that cash pipeline, uh, you'll, you'll see some people, uh, um, you know, the, that cash pipeline will either dry up uh, or individuals will be more principled because uh, they know they're not going to get that multi-million-dollar payday uh, if they if they uh, push forward some legislation that's not going to benefit the people and will only benefit special interests. Um, and, and that's that's just one of the ways that we need to fight it. But you're not going to see that change until you elect true principled individuals, and 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 that's why we have to resist whether it's big money, big endorsements. We got to elect people who are going to you know, are one of us, are our authentic individuals uh, who are going to live, die, win or lose on, on, on their core beliefs and, uh, and, and, and know what it means to live and work on our communities. Because right now we have this, this oligarchy of wealthy elitists who run our country. They are accountable to no one. They play by an a, a, a entirely different set of rules than the rest of us. Uh, and that's, Ultimately, what we need to change and what 2022 needs to be about is ending that oligarchy that has, that has taken control of every aspect of our lives. Because until we change that, until we change that cycle of politics that only enables wealthy elitists, you're not going to see the change that you need to see in all these other aspects that we've been talking about uh, tonight. Yeah, and again, we, I'm sure we could spend a lot, a lot more time to talk about the the current regime and, and, and corruption and just where, and not mm-hmm. and not just you know the Biden administration Democrats, there are some Republicans as well. Um, I, I could probably name about 35 of them. Uh, <laughs> that, would, that would really like to be able to get them primaried out. Um, and we actually did name them on, on one of the episodes a couple couple weeks or so ago. Uh, but I do want to briefly because I think the, one of the issues that you know, when I was going through it, and folks, uh, definitely go to his website, uh, check it out, um, and that's schultzforcongress.com. Uh, the one that stuck out, and I was like, yeah, I have to admit, I, you know, I'm, I'm a straight shooter, and, I, and uh, at least as much as I can be. And when I was looking at the stuff for the strength and immigration policy, you know, I was like, oh, man. I mean, that's, so it's a little bit about, uh, you know, about immigration, because it still is a very important topic. Personally, I think the reason why they're allowing uh, this to happen is because I think the Democrats are noticing that, hey, wait a minute, we got more minorities and more youth and, frankly, more females who are voting Republican. And I've been saying this for years, but um, we need a new constituency. Well, we better start working on building a constituency. I think they're working on a lot of things to stay in power in perpetuity, but I think one of the things they're doing is, hey, let's get all these folks in. Let's give um, – uh, yeah, not immunity. Let's uh, give them amnesty, and let's get these people voting for us. So that's what I think. I think they're trying to build a new constituency. But tell us a little bit um, on your immigration policy. 
Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. The left looks at the Democrat Party looks at what's going on at the border. They see every single person that comes across illegally as a future or current Democrat voter. And, <laughs> yeah, or current. That's very well said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so what the left needs, what the Democrat Party needs to stay in power is they need a permanent underclass of voters. That's why they are pro-illegal immigration and, and flooding our border with, with individuals who are coming in here for the most part, to take advantage of our massive welfare state. And that is why in mm-hmm. these impoverished urban communities, they have no intention proving education or fighting crime. They want people to stay in these predicaments because when people are impoverished, when they are poorly educated, uh, and when they don't have hope or the ability or uh, the means to lift themselves out of these uh, these situations, that is where the Democrat Party thrives, because they take advantage of those people. They have been for decades, and it's, it's, it's really quite sickening to watch it unfold, as I've seen it in my communities, you know, growing up in Northeast Ohio, around greater Cleveland, and seeing what's going on, especially on the east side of Cleveland, um, you know, one of the most impoverished areas in, in all of the United States. But to get specifically to immigration, uh, as everybody who logically looks at this problem would understand, we do need physical barriers at the border, right? You don't have a country without borders. And so that means you have to have, one, a physical barrier, two, physical presence at the border that can apprehend. Uh, we need to strengthen uh, and, and give the appropriate resources to, to, our, to our ICE um, uh, you know, uh, heroes. <laughs> I believe they are people who, mm-hmm. who we really need in our society. Um, we have these chain migration processes. We have this visa lottery program that is just flooding our country with immigrants who are coming legally and illegally. We accept far more legal immigrants. It's not even close than any country mm-hmm. in the world. And it is just stressing our system, stressing our economy to a point that we can no longer sustain. So we obviously need to stem the tide at the border. So it starts with physical barriers. It starts with a physical presence and actually enforcing our immigration laws and our borders. But we also have to manage this massive welfare state that we have here in America. If, even, if, uh, even if we just, just addressed it from the illegal side, because right now people can come over to America across the southern border. They can sneak into this country. They can get free education, free housing, free health care. And, uh, and, and, and so do I necessarily blame somebody coming from Mexico or Guatemala coming up here to, to try to take advantage of that system? No, they're trying to, they're trying to find a better life. I, I, I don't personally blame them. But it is ravaging our country. It is destroying lives of people who are working hard, who are paying taxes, who are trying to build a life in this country. And our first and foremost responsibility is to our American citizens. If we can't take care of them, who are we to then go to people coming here legally or legally and say that we're going to try to take care of you? But we need to address this massive welfare state that is attracting people, and we need to hold businesses accountable. So we need to start mandating and enforcing this e-verify 
to hold businesses accountable um, that are bringing in cheap illegal labor because that is that is a huge problem that we are facing around this country and and, and we're not going to end this problem until we hold our, our own businesses accountable that are taking advantage uh, of these people coming across the border. Yeah, and I, and I say many times, you know, I think the Democrat Party, including and maybe even especially Biden, I don't think he sees himself as the president of the United States. I think he sees himself as the president of the world. I don't think that they, the Democrats, believe that they're the representatives of the citizens of these United States. They're the citizens, you know, they're, they're the representatives of the citizens of the world. And that's even what they're teaching our kids now. Uh, they're like, you know, they're trying to teach them, well, you're, think of yourself more as a citizen of the world instead of a citizen of the United States. But uh, yeah. I want to get to the – go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I 100% agree with you, and you're, you're totally spot on that there's an enormous lack of patriotism. But it, it goes back to uh, – yeah, I don't know if Biden sees himself as much as anything because I don't know how much of, of him is actually absorbing <laughs> the situation of what's going on. That's true. But uh, the, the left does definitely look in terms of this global, you know, you know the, the, they call you the conspiracy theory of the whole one world government thing. Um, but that's that's this globalist movement that's spearheaded by, you know, the Democrat Party. And it goes back to, to Barack Obama saying that, you know, the United States has to basically just accept a, a, a lesser place in the world, that we're we are on the decline and we have to accept that. Uh, and, and, you know, what I would say and what every, you know, you know, red blooded American should say is that. The people of this country is special. We have a special place in this world for a reason, because we are a light of liberty, of prosperity, of opportunity, of what men uh, and women, how they ought to govern themselves and what that can lead to uh, of happiness and, and prosperity. Um, and, and we need to be that shining example to the world. So I think that's where, uh, the, you know, the, the, the true conservatives and the establishment and the left are on two totally opposite sides of, of uh uh, of that battle as well. So we've gone over, you know, a good amount and uh, close to an hour, but uh, we still got a little bit of time. Uh, was there anything that you know you, you'd like to co- you would like to cover, something we haven't covered uh, in this conversation that you would like to to talk about? Well, I think that one thing that's uh, you know extremely important is securing our elections. Um, we have to look at what went on in 2020. Um, and you don't even have to make the contention that we would have a different outcome, but we did not have a free or fair election in 2020. What happened was we saw laws being changed. We saw irregularities across the board. What we need to do is put in place a process that is a holistic approach to having a rock-solid election. And so I believe on the federal level we need to pass legislation that creates nationwide voter ID laws, bans all unsolicited mail-in voting, allows for us to have a paper trail to, uh, to adequately audit our elections, uh, criminalizes ballot harvesting, uh, and, and, and let's go back to having election day instead of having election season. <laughs> now we can vote for, you know, two-plus months. Uh, you know, we have all these drop boxes everywhere all over these states. 
mm-hmm. and the it's it, it's Swiss cheese. There's holes all over it, and 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 we we can't expect to have a, a a free and fair election if we have all of these opportunities for fraud. And we we know that the left is win at all costs. They're going to take advantage of everything that they can do because they they don't care how they take power. They're only they're, like I said at the beginning concern is ultimate authority at whatever cost. And that's ultimately Mm -hmm. why, you know, when I first became extremely engaged as far as being active in politics, I was always very engaged, reading, learning, uh, you know, boning up on policy. But I first took my first step into the political realm after the Kavanaugh hearings, because what I witnessed that day was a decent man, a man who probably lived a cleaner life than any one of us, <laughs> you know, pretty much anybody in the country, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful family, um, you know, obviously extremely intelligent, well-read person, uh, successful, uh, patriotic. And they took him and tried to destroy his career, his family, his reputation, uh, and tried to make it so that if he wasn't, uh, you know, uh, if he wasn't confirmed, that he could not participate in society ever again. And in that moment, what I realized was that's what the left will try to do to anybody who stands up to them, anybody who gets in their way. You know, Trump, Trump mm-hmm. would say, uh, you know, that, you know, it, he was the one. He, he, it wasn't that they hated him. He was just the barrier in between, between the left and us. And I think that that's yeah. true. Is what you see them do to conservatives on the national stage, they would proudly and happily do to any one of us. And so I think that's what the message that we have to share with people is that, that people who are like-minded to us and are afraid to step out because they don't want to, they don't want to lose friends. They don't want to be ostracized from society. They don't want to pay that price. The truth is you either stand up and fight. Now you get vocal. Now you get engaged now or you won't have a country to fight for. This country will be gone, and, it will co- and, and you can't hide from this. You cannot hide from this forever. It's going to come to your front door. And so that's why I jumped into this race, because I understood that, you know, we can sit back and hide and wait things out, but it's coming for us eventually. And I don't have the luxury, none of us have the luxury, to sit back on the sidelines and watch as our country is utterly torn apart, watch as our cities are burned, Watch as our constitution is shredded and watch as our, our very way of life and the freedoms that we've, we've come to take for granted are stripped from us in a heartbeat over a lie. And, and ultimately, that's the recognition that we have to have of the moment that we're in, that it's going to take 100% of all our God-given gifts, abilities, our means to take back this country. It is on our shoulders now. There's nobody that's coming to res- rescue us. It is we the people against everything else. And that is why this 2022 election is so important, because we have to beat people like Anthony Gonzalez, like Liz Cheney, like Mitt Romney, who are taking us down the exact same road as the radical left. It's not good enough Mm -hmm. to have our next game anymore. Like Ronald Reagan said, there's not a left or right anymore. There's an up or a down. And there has not been a time in history where it's more true uh, than today. It is simply establishment against anti-establishment. And I know that myself and people like me who are running around this country to try to take it back, whether it's in Congress, in our Senate, in our school boards, in our, in our, in our state level races, 
we're going against political machines. We're going against huge money. But the people are what is what's going to carry us through this movement, through this through this campaign, and through uh, to victory. Because ultimately, what we need in this country is to create a grassroots movement all around this country of liberty-loving individuals who are going to stand up and say that we're no longer going to tolerate our liberties being stripped from our hands, and we're going to stand up and fight back. And so I think that that's what this election is really about. It's about sending a message to the establishment that we're not rolling over any longer, and we're going to take back this country starting in 2022, and even starting in 2021 with our local elections. We have to vote in our school board elections. We have to start taking back um, our local communities and creating these these fortresses of freedom uh, all around our country while we try to take back the federal government as well. Um, but if I could leave, you know, with one thing, uh, go to SchultzForCongress.com. Again, that's spelled S-C-H-U-L-Z, SchultzForCongress.com. It's Jonah Schultz for Congress on Facebook, Jonah Schultz O-H on Twitter. Um, and we're going to take this country back because we have – you know, as Americans, our history, we've overcome so much. We've overcome the greatest of odds. And our founding fathers, they, they knew that there was, there was not too dear a price to pay for freedom. And look at the situation that they were in. They were going against the strongest, most powerful military force in human history. And they had no idea how this would turn out. But they knew. They knew the cause was just, and they knew what the moment called for them to do. And we have to have that understanding. And if, if we stay true to our constitution, to each other, to our faith, there's nothing that we can't overcome as, 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 as Americans. Uh, and, I, and I wholeheartedly believe that. And I wouldn't be running if I didn't believe that. Um, so I think it's just we have to feel our resolve. Uh, and we have to fight harder than we've ever fought before. Uh, and, and I think that that's the reality of the situation. There's, we can't have any illusions of, of what's in front of us, how difficult this is going to be, but it's going to take each and every one of us, and we all are a piece to this puzzle. Um, and and, and we've, we've overcome obstacles in the past, and I believe we will, we will take this country back starting in 2021 here in local elections in 2022 uh, in, in our Congress and, 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 and federal elections. One last quick question, because I know you said you, you had an hour, and I would certainly appreciate your time. Two things. One, we certainly you know, would like to have you back on the show. Uh, that's for certain. Um, and then two, is there any uh, thought that are you, are you and uh, Gonzalez going to do any type of debates or anything? I would love to have a debate with Anthony Gonzalez. Uh, unfortunately, he's been hiding under a rock since the impeachment vote, and now, well, except when he popped out to vote for the January 6th commission. Um, right. I don't think that I don't think he'll come anywhere near the district talking, speaking with the people, because you know, I've been campaigning for over four months. I've spoken directly with thousands of voters, and I can tell you that 99 percent of those Republican voters will will not even hear out Anthony Gonzalez because they 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 have been betrayed enough times to know better. Um, and so I would love to debate him. Uh, but I would be shocked if he ever agreed to do so. But that would definitely be something I would like uh, to, to see as well. I might even, if that happens, pipe it into to the show. But, no, I certainly appreciate uh, you, you coming in. Again, we'd like to invite you back uh, to have you on. I'm sure, you know, not only myself, but you know, some of our panelists here and callers would, would like to have an opportunity to, to speak with you uh, sometime as well. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, again, we do appreciate uh, your time here. Uh, you know, we've got folks who, uh, you know, sometimes send me tips. I can, I can send that information to you uh, as well, you know, you know on, on Twitter. And I think we got that email as well. Um, so is there uh, anything else you'd like to go? But I know you guys, you, you spent uh, the time with us. So, again, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I greatly appreciate you having me on, and I'll, I'll certainly uh, come back on here in the future. And, you know, I, I just appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the fight. Keep spreading the truth. Um, like I said, we all have a role to play in this, and we all have to be warriors for liberty. So, you know, with that, I really appreciate it. God bless you, and thank you for having me on. Well, you too. Take care, and uh, good luck with your campaign, and we're certainly going to be following it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. I'll talk to you again soon. You too. Take care. Good night. And that was uh, our conversation with uh, Judah Schultz, uh, GOP candidate running against Anthony Gonzalez. Uh, definitely check out his website at Schultz, that's S-C-H-U-L-Z for Congress, uh, .com. Uh, definitely, uh, again, I was reading through his his website, you know, reading for uh, you know different stances, and, and there's a lot I must have, <laughs> I must admit I agree with. Uh, so and we do, and we we said it here on the show is we certainly need uh, you know candidates who are from the people, for the people, not from the politicians, and you know for the politicians. And I think that's what we've been seeing a lot lately is those type of. I mean, look at Gonzalez, look at uh, Kinninger. And he mentioned uh, earlier tonight, of course, you know, look at Romney, which we railed on Romney on this program for since the inception in 2012 uh, when he was running for when he was running for president. And then, of course, you have uh, the people such as. Oh, you know what? I mean, she's so inconsequential. I forgot her name. Now that she she lost her her committee ship, uh, uh, Cheney. There we go. Liz Cheney. Uh, I, I think she's just trying to stay relevant at this point now that, uh, you know, she's lost uh, her seats. Well, not seats, but chairmanships, you know what I mean. Uh, so, I mean, but all these folks, they all have to be voted out, and they need to be primaried out. And we, we gave a list, as I mentioned earlier tonight. We've got a list of, you know, 35, you know, Republicans who really need to be uh, to be voted out. And uh, the way to do that is through you know, the primary, you know, primary system. So if you find a candidate that you like, uh, certainly if you if you're in the area and you can volunteer with the internet, uh, now you maybe even be able to volunteer and not live in their locality. Of course, there's always the financial support, which candidates such as Jack Lombardi we had on last week, and you know, our candidate, you know, Jonah tonight. And they're going to need funds because let me tell you something. He's right. They are up against the machine. They are going to be up against the the establishment. So unfortunately, we know what money could do in an election. And so, you know, I mean, we'll reach out. I know Kelly. Uh, you sent me a text. Uh, you know, give them your number. Give whatever tips that uh, that you can. And again, you know, help these candidates out. Uh, I really think, yeah, and I, I think he's right about Gonzalez, too. I mean, he, he did you know, peek out of his little hole uh, to make those other votes, which, again, is, is not be – I wonder if they make these votes knowing how unpo- – that they're like, look, I'm out of here anyway, so I'm going to get as much press 
as I because I I think they know their their political numbers up. I mean, especially after you know the vote, uh, you know, impeach Trump when we know they're unfounded, um, and you know. So we'll uh, as uh, reading something here, as you know, as I do here. You know, so he, I think he knows his numbers up. But just like Liz Cheney, I mean, I, th- I think they're all for, hey, let's, um, you know, let's see what they'll be, you know, what kind of press we can get uh, for that. So let's um, let's go ahead and uh, bring in Joseph. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Joseph, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Uh, pleasure to be back on, Robert. How are you? Oh, good, good. It's it's always a pleasure, you know, talking with these uh, these candidates, and you know, especially. I mean, I tell you what, I I support the guy. I mean, you know, I know there's a couple other people, you know, I'm still trying to get on for for you know, like. But I think there's a, one more candidate I've been trying to reach, uh, who's running against uh, uh, Kensinger. But I mean, I, I haven't even really seen her on Twitter much. Uh, correct, correct. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's 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 going to be a uh, a bloody 2022. Um, it's very imperative that uh, we take back the House and we take back the Senate. Uh, we have to. It's not a matter of we must try, but we must achieve. Uh, otherwise, we will lose our constitutional republic. It's the only way we could ensure that the uh, Harris Biden regime is a lame duck. Uh, regime for the uh, last two years uh, following into uh, 2024. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, um, taking back the House and the Senate uh, is going to be a few challenges there, uh, but it's all about resonating and tapping into the anger and the frustration of uh, 81 million voters who feel disenfranchised and uh, our country continuing to go uh, and sink deeper and deeper into the abyss. And it's very important that these candidates, uh, you know, they have to not only emphasize what their platforms are, but it's very critical that they make a compelling argument to the voters as to what the contrast is from their opponents. Very important. You have to sell that. You have to give the argument, you know, it just doesn't suffice to give your platform. You have to say, this is my opponent. This is what he or she stands for. Elect me. I'll make sure, you know, I am not that candidate. Uh, I'll make sure that uh, I vote the conscience of my constituents. And so that's going to be very important if candidates want to be viable and they want to get across that line. It doesn't just suffice to talk about your platform you have to make a compelling argument or arguments as to what is the contrast uh, from uh, you know the candidate and the contrast from the opponent. And you got to show people that you're a hard hitter. People want people who have a spine. People want people who are going to hit hard and not afraid to throw the punches and not afraid to throw the insults because the left sure isn't afraid uh, to do so. And uh, last and most importantly, if you're ever going to do something, do it right or don't do it at all. Um, it's very important that you know you allow uh, the people to opine uh, whenever you are appearing on a show. 
Um, it, it just doesn't seem fair uh, for any candidate uh, whatsoever, whether they're from the left, the right, the center, libertarian. If you're going to come on a show, you have to dedicate uh, you know, an equal amount of time uh, to the listeners of the show because right now with the Harris and Biden regime, the most frustrating part is we have a coward president, so-called president, who won't take a question from the media press corps or continues to hide. And so if you're going to make the argument, elect me, well, you're not making that argument if you're going on a show and then you're ditching the show without allowing people to opine and ask the questions. Because here's addressing the elephant in the room. How are you expected to earn the trust of your voters if you won't give them the time on a show to answer questions? How do you expect to earn their trust so if you get elected into office and your constituents communicate their concerns to you, well, if, if you're not, um, how may I say, if you're not uh, groomed or if you're not conditioned to leaving time to answer questions wherever you may go, um, whether you're at a fundraiser, whether you're at a um, public event, it doesn't matter where you are. It's very important that you speak, but it's very important to get the input of, of, of your constituents or the voters that you are uh, appealing to because they want to be heard. They're tired of being censored. They're tired of being told to uh, shut up and, and, and sit in the back of the bus. And so they're looking for a candidate that's going to say, hey, you're going to dedicate time to whatever show you're going to go on, whatever newspaper, blog, whatever, but show us that you're going to give us time that we can ask you the questions. Because that's the standard well, that, that I mean, we well, expect to hold you. We had, well, we had, in, a couple of weeks ago, we had you know, Jack Labardi on. He did stay for the whole program. We ha- have had you know, candidates uh, you know, come on for an entire show. Now, that, uh, that's pretty – I mean, that happens – I've always been surprised, frankly. I mean, because I, I watch you – know, I, I listen to a lot of you know, other radio shows, and I watch a lot of pundit shows and things of that nature. People have guests on you know, uh, on other programs, and, and, it, and it has amazed me in the past on, on how long that candidates do stay on, on Bard's Logic. I mean, again, we've had, uh, you know, Jack Lombardi stayed on the entire three hours, which is always a shock to me. Um, and then also, in, in the, you know, tonight with, with Jonah, they stayed on for an hour where it's actually rare. Uh, you know, as you guys know this, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's actually rare to get a candidate to stay on an, I mean, you know, an, an hour, especially you know the time of the day we have it, uh, or time of the evening, and that's my and that's because of my schedule right now. Um, Correct. But Correct. That's why I, that's why I offer them. Well, yeah, I mean, see the way the way I do it, um, you know, you know, pending. I mean, I, that, me have them answering questions for like tonight. Um, them answering questions from from people wasn't even discussed uh, at this point, and th- that that could be on my, on me. But that's well, why I invite them. You know, for, for one, I invite them on for the first show. Let them be comfortable. Let them be comfortable with those. These people, when pe- but my, my stance is this, and I understand where, exactly where you're coming from, and I agree. I'm not, and I agree with where you're coming from, Joseph. 
the, but the way maybe I, I could I should explain the way I I'm, I've been doing things is that especially with these the, these you know people who've never run for office before, and they I want them to be comfortable to be coming here to Bard's Logic because then they will come to to us again, and then once they know that you know hey I'm not you know I'm not going to um, die on this on any hill. Then once they're comfortable being here on Bard's Logic, they know, okay, with the host, it's going to ask tough questions but fair questions, okay? Cool. And then, of course, cool. they could be – then, you know, the audience in a lot of ways, you know, at least in my experience listening to, you know, a lot of other shows, is the audience is – and callers are in a lot of ways an extension of, of the host. So if you get a good feel of how the host is, you got a pretty general good idea of, of how the audience and the callers are going to be. And so what I try to do is I try to set that foundation to, you know, the candidates to come on, be comfortable, and then we invite them back. Then I can open up, you know, you know, because, again, I didn't even mention, um, you know, I didn't even mention anything about about other callers because I try to set it up, hey, if they come in, then we can have, you know, uh, you know other people who can. And, and sometimes, you know, you know, being on a blog, you, you, sometimes you have people on who can ask questions. Sometimes, uh, you know. Sometimes you don't. Um, so that, that's kind of how I like to, to lay comments. the land. But we 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 do give opportunity. We have in the past give opportunities where there have had, had candidates uh, who yes, who's, who's taking calls from from panelists and audience members. I mean, we even Correct. used to have Kelly members and Kel, and Kel, and I have Kelly on the line where we used to do we used to do back and forth interviews with people, but those were generally almost like an hour and a half or maybe even the whole show when those happened. Correct. And just for the record, my comments were not aimed at Mr. Schultz. Um, um, I I barely heard anything of what he was talking about. I wasn't able to uh, chime into the show. Um, So um, I just wanted to say that for the record. It's not regarding um, Mr. Schultz or it's just talking about in general. Um, it's, It's more of a generalization. Uh, it, it, it's more of a reality of a generalization. Uh, if we're going to take back the House and we're going to take back the Senate, A, you have to make the compelling argument, this is my opponent, this is uh, you know, his or her record, this is why you can't uh, you know, reelect uh, this person. This is why I'm in this race. I'm in this race to you know, prevent A, B, C, D, and E. And then, of course, you know, um, very, 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 very critical, important. Um, you know, whether you're on uh, Fox or MSNBC or CNN or Newsmax or ABC or NBC News, uh, it's very important that you uh, have a candidate that is always going to allow a couple of minutes uh, for questioning. And, you know, usually... Uh, you know, these moderators or these um, hosts of the show, they'll have a certain uh, stylistic approach or a certain way they ask the questions. But I think what people are looking for are leaders, leaders who are not going to have to wait on a queue for a host uh, for them to uh, know when they should segue in and out or know when they should you know, start to open it up for questions or going to other subject matters and things of that nature. If you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and, if, and if you look at um, Josh Hawley uh, and if you look at, uh, you know, other uh, candidates who were elected for the first time back in 2020, 
they a lot of them got across the line is because they were running for office for the first time, but they they had good instincts and good hunches and. Uh, they had real admiral leadership qualities that uh, you didn't need to wait on a cue. You just instinctively knew when to kind of segue uh, into a topic or segue out of a topic, or when you just uh, flat out, you know, decide to say, "Hey, you know, um, I'd like to open the floor to anyone who'd like to uh, ask me anything or have any clarifications," uh, because the left is going to come strong. And remember, the left has unity behind them. Uh, they're more unified than we are, and, um, you know, we have a lot of problems going on. We have uh, the meatpacking company that also got hacked into uh, today uh, by uh, another um, entity in Russia. Um, we have the Biden-Harris regime uh, that is completely destroying our economy, and so, you know, there is really no free market unless we address uh, the policies that are crippling our economy. Um, and, you know, we have to also address um, that once we take back the House and once we take back the Senate, our major, major number one priority is that we must do everything to ensure that the next two years we ensure that it's a lame duck session. We ensure that we minimize what the Harris-Biden regime and what uh, the my what then the minority uh, party in Congress and Senate can and cannot do because if we don't address the root of the problem, all these other issues that we're talking about is is moot. We have to address it from the root first, and uh, that's ensuring that we do everything that the left is doing to us right now. And basically, what they're doing is they're tying. Uh, our hands behind our back, and they're ensuring that they're ramming everything through because they know 2022 is going to be a bloodbath. They know it's going to be a day of reckoning. So they're trying to get everything they could ram through. It reminds me of the first two years of the Obama administration when he swore on the campaign trail, elect me, and my number one priority will be the economy. And instead he did the opposite by ramming through the Unaffordable, um, uh, the unaffordable uh, Care Act which is known as Obamacare. Uh, and that's when the American people and the Tea Party rose. That was at the height of the Tea Party, and they said, no, no, we've got to put a check and balance on you. And in 2010, they took back the House. Uh, it was a repudiation of uh, Barack Obama's uh, policies. And uh, I remember exactly what he said that day. He said, well, I took a shellacking, um, and he sure did. And so that is very important that candidates have to make that distinction to the voter. Who am I really voting for? Am I voting for a fighter? Am I voting for someone who has a spine? And if so, then I have to call it as it is. And if so, I have to acknowledge 81 million disenfranchised Americans. How do I do that? I start by adamantly saying, make no mistake, this uh, 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 this power that was stolen from Donald Trump, the legitimate president. This will go down in history as the greatest rig. And we, we have to have candidates who are not afraid to say that off the bat. Make no mistake, this election was rigged. That, that, that the people need to know in their candidates, they need to hear that. Because so many people on January 6th, even a lot of staunch allies of President Trump, they cowered. 
They ran. They ducked when they were facing the fire. When you face the fire, right, you have two options. You can duck and run, or you can face the fire. And a lot of them, surprisingly, a lot of names who I thought would and would never be capable of betraying um, Donald Trump did. And we have to ensure that our candidates who are running for 2022, whether it be the uh, at the state level, at the local levels, for Congress, for Senate, that first they acknowledge that this election was rigged. Because until you do not acknowledge that, if you just continue to just stuff it under the rug, you're just going to piss off even more, 81 million Americans, which is more than half the country. They cannot continue to be disenfranchised. And the media is doing a great job of saying that we have to be deprogrammed. They want to wipe us off the map. They want to do it so bad, they, they want to push the narrative that uh, this is a conspiracy theory, that we invented this, that we dreamt this, that the guy who couldn't even get 10 people to a rally won more votes than any other president in history, including his predecessor, Barack Obama. So we need candidates that, A, are not going to hesitate in putting that out center-right, first and foremost, because then that assures 81 million Americans Hey, we got another, We have a. We have another Marjorie Taylor Greene. And right now, you want to know why she's so popular? It's because of what she says, and it's because she's not afraid to say it. And she's even created something called the American First Caucus, which is going to be in competition with Jim Jordan's House Freedom Caucus. And she's not afraid to constantly go out there and say, "Hey, this election was rigged," and in doing so, her messaging is on spot. Do you know what she pulled in last quarter, Robert? She pulled in over $3.5 million quarter alone. She's more popular now than ever, and she just got elected in 2020. And you know, I don't know why, because people look at her like the female version of Trump. She's not afraid to throw the punches. She's not afraid to not be politically correct, and she's not afraid to tell the truth no matter what the blowback is. And the more the left tries to do everything to expel her from Congress, to strip her of her committees, it's only empowering her more. And we need conservative candidates, like-minded, like Marjorie Green Taylor, who are going to tell it as it is, who's going to throw the punches, who's not going to be afraid of this PC garbage, and who's going to tell it as it is. And we need to address the issues. And yes, there are a lot of issues, Robert, that we need to address. But we need to address the real issues first before we can address the other issues that need to be put on the back burner. Because if we don't, then our country collapses and we cease to exist, then everything as we know it is gone. It's done. We're finito. And I've been saying this on this show for months. Every day that goes by, America is sinking deeper and deeper into the abyss. So we must take back the Senate, and we must take back Congress, because we must ensure that we remain a constitutional republic. We remain, we remain the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we make the last two years of the Biden-Harris regime a lame duck session. And we have to address this systemic racism that everyone is promoting, that is a myth. And if we're going to talk about critical race theory, it's even being implemented in prep schools in New York. 
that are charging $50,000 a year in tuition. So it's not just a problem in the public school educational system. It's becoming a problem in the private sector as well. And um, that's going to be very important. And if I were to talk about education, um, I want to start talking about getting kids in the classrooms. How are we going to start getting kids back in the classrooms? That's very important. You, you see, you've got to go to A before you go to B and C. You can't go to B and C and then jump to A. You can give me all these dandy programs and ideas and things like that, but how do we get the kids back in the classrooms first and foremost? What do we do to do that? What do we do when Republicans take back the House and the Senate to do that? What do we do for the presidency in 2024 to make that a staple issue? We are robbing our kids blind of their education. They need to be put back in the classroom. Before we talk about vouchers or uh, charter schools or anything like that, we need, to, we need to address the elephant in the room. And this is a generalization. This is not aimed at any one particular candidate. This is mo what most Americans want to know right now. This is uh, bread and butter issues. What do we do to get our children back in schools? And yes, we see the unions as a threat, and that's why I highly encourage right-to-work states. And right-to-work states are states where unions, it's not mandatory for you to join. You have the power to opt in or opt out without losing your job or being persecuted. And we need to have more right-to-work states because, let's be honest, unions worked 40 years ago. Once upon a time in a galaxy long, long, far, far away, it worked. But eventually, like anything, it becomes corrupt, and it, it ceases to you know, perform their functions. And so unions have stopped working for the people for the longest time. And right now, unions are in the way of getting the children back in the classrooms. And I will defer back to you, Robert. Well, and I know Kelly's been on um, hold for a while, so I want to do. I want to bring him back, uh, him in. Uh, thank you very much, Kelly, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Good, good. I uh, really enjoyed hearing Mr. Schultz. <clears throat> I, I really like it when Americans step up and run. Hopefully, his campaign will do well. Um, I caught the tail end of it. I just I was Sacramento today. And uh, you step out of the car. It's like, oh my gosh, 100 degrees. It's like, whew, it's like a heat wave. But yeah, it's California at times. So yeah, I wanted to ask you guys what you would think about this event. Okay, this is what I'm hoping to offer, Mr. Schultz. Um, imagine you walk into a oh town hall meeting and. You're getting ready for the big event. The big event is uh, two candidates, be it a primary or a general election. Two candidates have agreed to show up for a constitutional challenge. Kind of like Jeopardy, you get points, and uh, you know, let's test their constitutional knowledge. And so, out of 100 points, are they going to get a 30 points, 50, 60? 90, or maybe even hopefully 100, because if you don't know the Constitution, if you don't know the Constitution, which all laws are derived from, obviously the Constitution is the supreme law, if you don't know the Constitution, then why are you running for office? 
So you watch this event, you know, a short little I'm candidate A, I'm candidate B. Da 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 da. Okay, and now we go to the the uh, the quiz. The candidate you like, I'm sure Schultz would probably get a ninety percent, maybe eighty percent, maybe he'd get a hundred percent. And his the other candidate would only get to thirty percent. Okay. That doesn't cause the to look very good. Because they'll say, they'll say things at the very beginning. Oh, yeah, I really like the Constitution. Yeah, it's a good idea. Well, then do you know it? <laughs> it's that simple. Test it. Prove it out. You know, suppose Schultz did this and the other candidate didn't show up. What does that say about that candidate? It says he doesn't care about the Constitution. So I call it the Constitutional Challenge. What would you guys – would you guys like to see candidates do this? Well, Kelly, I've always wanted to host the constitutional challenge with you, uh, but let's do it in Hawaii, okay? So, Robert, you'll pay for all our tickets first class, okay? And guess what? <laughs> yeah. We'll have AOC pay for it, okay? Don't worry because AOC always finds a way to pay for it, so don't worry. Just put it on your credit card, and AOC will flip the bill. The left always finds a way. So we'll host the summit, but first. We must have a coronation. We must have our daiquiris on Waikiki Beach and uh, enjoy some suntan. And then I was thinking maybe we'll host it in, um, I don't know, um, another tropical beach. It'll be really cool, and it'll be a great way to have a vacation and get away. What do you think, guys? Good? Good idea? Yes. Well, Hopefully. yeah, vacation, yeah, as as, but I don't know long... if I can't foot the bill. Yeah, OC would have to pay for it because I, I couldn't afford to foot the bill. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, what do you think, Kelly? Because, I mean, you know, the left always, you know, finds a way to say they could pay for almost anything. So, I mean, I figured why not subsidize something really worthy? So, yeah, and you never know. We may bump into Barack Obama over there with his snow cones. So maybe he's had too much snow cones go to his head. But uh, you never know, you know. So it's a small island, but, you know. <laughs> no, i got to bring a little well, bit well, of humor I, I, to I, that. I, I, I'm really glad to attend as long as Robert pays or Joseph pays. I don't know. Okay. That sounds like fun now. Um, uh, yeah, no, you know, I figured, Robert, you know, you you um, you um could lead by example and, you know, you should just put it as a write-off and AOC will take care of it. And, and don't worry, um, Kelly, we'll, we'll get the we'll get the daiquiris as a deal. Just get us the first-class tickets and um, we'll stay at the Hawaiian Hilton Village and it'll be all great. Um, no, yeah, no, that's, that's a pie in the sky. I wish, I wish. Uh, no, I actually like that, Kelly. That's, 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 that's it, it's, it's different, a constitutional challenge. And you know what? You just gave me an idea. I, no, you really did give me an idea. Um, you see, whenever you're running for office, whether it's city council or you're running for mayor, uh, you, 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 you there is a, an election committee that mandates that you have to have a certain amount of debates. And I think uh, what's great is um, a campaign has the ability to also throw down the gauntlet and uh, challenge the opposition to see if they want to do extra debates. What better than to say, I want to challenge you to a constitutional uh, debate. And I bet most opponents would, would be hit blindsided. They'll go, what? <laughs> You'll make him look like an idiot, but I think it's actually a great idea because um, I think it's great to actually throw the gauntlet out there. And I, I love how you said it, Kelly, because you're so right. 
if you don't understand our Constitution, you shouldn't be running for political office. All our laws are derived from there. It's like a doctor trying to perform a surgery who's never taken a medical course before. I probably don't think I want that doctor operating on me, even if it was for free. Um, well, here's, here's, and so well, what better you're, you're way to go Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're leading, yeah, you're leading into a good analogy I came up with about this because I've heard candidates um, give their spiel, and uh, then I ask them at the end, uh, what do you know about Article 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights? And they're going to say, oh, I, I like the Constitution. I really like the Constitution. No, that's not what I asked. What, what, what are Article 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights? Oh, I really like the Bill of Rights. That's not what I'm asking. <laughs> and they couldn't answer the question. And one lawyer, one guy, yeah. an attorney, he says, well, I studied constitutional law in, in law, law school. Good. What's well, Article 9 and 10? Well, uh, you, uh, okay. So um, I, the analogy You have is, to be prepared. Yeah. You have to be prepared. Right. And so, if you don't know it, then hire somebody like Dr. Tolberg, who I miss. I, I, he hasn't been on this show forever, but I love – he's our constitutional scholar. How I would hire Dr. Tolberg just to be my advisor – and I would say, teach me whatever I need to know because this Kelly guy is ferocious. I need to be on par the next time I got to this go to the show because he he took me to school and back. So I'd be like, uh, this is a learning curve. I need to hire Dr. Tolberg. Dr. Tolberg, gonna take a couple of months to get back on Robert's show, but I promise you, Kelly, this Kelly guy from the Wild Wild West of California, I'm gonna be ready to even know what Article 89 is. And you're right. You, you got to be prepared because I, I think this is actually a great challenge if you're facing a Democratic opponent um, versus if you're just trying to primary a rhino. I think it's great to have a, a, a constitutional debate. And throw the gauntlet down by saying, I want to chat. What's a constitutional debate? Well, I mean, you know, you're, you may be the Democratic Party, but you should know what it is. Yes, the voters deserve to know. Do you have an understanding? of our constitution. They deserve to know that and you should be an expert on that. If you're hypothetically the incumbent, you should actually welcome this debate because I want to show to the voters who I hope to earn their trust that I understand the constitution and that my job is not to interpret the constitution uh, because of my personal views of it. That's not my job. My job is to uphold what's in the constitution and that's the problem with our Supreme Court. They have failed to uphold what's our Constitution. Instead, they choose to interpret, based on their own personal beliefs, what is what the Constitution should be. And that's the slippery slope of what our uh, Supreme Court has become, sadly, and has failed in not serving its purpose. And I think that's actually a great idea, and thank you. You gave me a great idea, um, and I'll leave it at that. Robert, I know you know I know you know what I'm talking about, but I love it. I welcome it. That's what I love about you, Kelly. You always come up with these unconventional new ideas, and that's what people are looking for, Kelly. That's what they want. They want unconventionality. They want somebody who thinks outside the box. They don't want another cliche. They don't want someone reading talking points from 2012. They want authenticity. They want fire and desire. They want people that are going to shake you up. They want people that are going to, that they're going to resonate with. But most important, for the love of God, yes, they're looking for authenticity. 
and they're looking for someone who can demonstrate that I know the Constitution and elect me, and my job will not be to interpret it based on my values. My job will be to interpret it based on what the Constitution mandates, what the laws derives from. That's my job. And my job is not to uh, vote, vote my conscience. My job is to vote the conscience of my constituents. And I think that's important, and Kelly, great idea, because that would be a gauntlet. I can assure you any Dem challenger would fail miserably, because if there's one weakness about the Democrats, they don't know they're left and right about the Constitution. Although they like to lecture us on how us on the right, uh, we don't know what the Constitution is about, but they're the biggest hypocrites. And I'll defer back to Robert and defer back to you, Kelly, because they are the – they, they are doing everything to violate the Constitution. They are – I hate to say it, but they're raping our Constitution left and right. They do a wonderful job at that, and that is a big weakness of the left. And I think throwing a constitutional debate – and even if the challenger doesn't accept it, then guess what? The candidate has leverage. The candidate gets to say, well, if the incumbent won't even welcome a debate, what are you afraid of? You're the incumbent. You're in power. You're asking the people to entrust you with another term. What are you hiding from? You should be a pro at this. Hey, I, I'm just a challenger here. Are you afraid? What are you afraid of? And that's the fundamental yeah. question, and I'll defer it back to you guys. All right. Let me throw some thoughts out. <clears throat> um, so when I asked this Democrat, Article 9 and 10, he didn't know. I told him, since you don't know the Constitution, you shouldn't be running because from the Constitution, all laws are derived, so, and the Constitution protects our liberties. Um, so a couple more details. It's, it's, I thought about the name. It's not a constitutional debate. It's a constitutional challenge with the point system, and it would be done, say, by a third party so that there's no cheating anywhere. And if they are studying the Constitution and they still lose the challenge, but they're still elected, guess what? They learn the Constitution more. And so there's other little finer points to the whole thing, but um, a candidate can call up a local Tea Party and or whoever, Patriot Party, Freedom Lovers, Liberty Fighters, whoever, okay? Santa Cruz, they have a thing called Liberty Forum. And just call them up and say, hey, would you do this? And invite me and invite my opponent. And after that, it's completely out of his hands. Completely out of his hands. Um, but both candidates would be studying. And you can make the challenge so hard that um, the Supreme Court would have a hard time on the spot. You can make it so easy that anybody who studied the Constitution a little bit would get 100%. So the level of complexity has to be very carefully thought through. I mean, here's a simple one. What are the, what, I'll give this in multiple choice. First three articles of the Constitution, what is the order? A, legislative, judicial, executive. B, legislative, executive, judicial. C, judicial, executive, legislative. What does Article 1, 2, 3 describe in the three branches? I like that. It's, it's, like, it's like a constitutional jeopardy. 
I love it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the correct answer oh, I is. I love it. No, no. I, uh, Robert, yeah. I'm, I, I love it. What yeah. Do you think, so Robert? you can make your answer A, B, or C. Okay. Um, I will buy a vowel. Oh no, I'll buy a letter. <laughs> uh, I'll go with B. I'll go with. Uh, 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 I'll buy a B, please. Okay, B is legislative, executive, judicial. Okay, let's see what Robert says. Yeah, I was going to say B. Very good, yes. Article 1 of the legislature, Article 2, executive branch, Article 3 is the judiciary. And that's how simple the questions can be. Yeah. Um, wait, 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 wait. Do I get to spin the wheel? No, that's Wheel of Fortune, darn it. Okay. I'm getting excited. I want to spin the wheel. If, if, if I hit the, right, uh, the RV van, do I get to win it too? No, 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 no. I, I, I like it. I like the concept. It's like a modern day constitutional jeopardy. I love it. What do yeah. You, Robert, yeah, you can call, you can call whatever you I want. You can call it whatever you want, but have a point system and, and grade these people. And that'll be proclaimed quite a bit amongst a number of circles and maybe even on the radio. Um, but I also wanted to mention, um, yeah, the, the independence is so important that both candidates are going to be studying. And at least if that's how they're going to learn the Constitution, at least there. There you go. Add one bonus point if you can cite a case law that supports the answer. Um, you yeah, can get right. one extra point. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's why I'm not the constitutional scholar on this program, Kelly. I'm the political oh, analyst. That's okay. <laughs> right, that's okay. All right. So, so you know, Second Amendment, well, you go to Heller versus U.S., and there you go. Okay. Prince versus U.S. Let's, let's see. Boom. There's a, there's a, a gun rights case, Prince versus U.S. All right. Now, I would like it, just for fun, if we could do a practice thing, uh, me versus uh, Dr. Tolbert. That means oh, maybe I Joseph. I love it already. Joseph. Rivalry. I love it. I love it. Robert, yeah, we got to I mean, do it. We got to do it. No, I'm, I'm serious. And, and this will incentivize Dr. Tolbert to come back on the show. So we got to do it. We got to do it. Only, only I get, I get, I, uh, uh, we, we, we get to bet anonymously. We put our bets on who we think is going to win anonymously. So there you go. I hope you're okay with that, folks. Just in case we choose the wrong side, we won't come out looking dumb. So we'll be okay. We'll be like, no, the bet was anonymous. You can't know who we, who we voted for, who we put our money on. All right, all right. I I, I can't do it. I'll, I'll I'll put a hundred dollars on Kelly. Robert, who are you, you going to put your money on? I'll put a hundred on Kelly. Between Robert? Kelly and Doctor Tolbert, um, I, hey, look, yeah. I I'm I'm the I'm the host here. I really can't say. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great idea, though. I think it would be fun, and I think it would be educational. It'd be different. It'd be different. It would be honestly. I think it would. And Kelly's bringing the challenge on, and I like it, so bring it on. It's like, I like it. Uh, Dr. Tolberg, if you're listening, I'm sorry. You can't renege. The, the gauntlet's been thrown for the record. And, yeah, these, <laughs> these podcasts are archived, so they are embedded in history. So you can't get away from it. The gauntlet's been thrown. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, ten questions. You can just read the Constitution yourself and develop ten questions. And uh, we'll see who wins. I hope Dr. Tolbert wins. Robert, is this where we uh, we, we bribe uh, Washerman Schultz to give us the uh, answers uh, ahead of the oh, debate? God. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm on the show. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot my yeah. mic. Oh, my. Oh, Lord. 
Uh, no, I was I was just I was um just talking about um what happened back in 2016. I was not implying whatsoever that we would be fed the answers to the questions ahead of time. Of course, we would not do something like that, right? We don't want to ruin our potential gigs on MSNBC. Let's not do that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No, but 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 think about it. Imagine if someone secretly fed us the answers to the questions ahead of the show. It's like, uh, and we answer, I, I answer everyone right, and Kelly would be like, "Wait a minute, how do you know that? There's no way you could know those ten questions." And then Kelly will just throw a question out of nowhere that you'll won't even have time to look it up on Google while you're on the phone. You just throw like a hardball out there where you just can't out your tongue. What's the matter? You're trying to Google it quickly? No, no, I'm sorry. you got five seconds to answer. Uh, I want to move on to something new I'm working on. Sure. I started a petition drive. I started a petition drive yesterday. I've already got signatures. It's a petition drive to... Yeah, it's local to get the attention of our county supervisors. One petition is one to make sure, you know, we the undersigned want to make sure that the Dominion Boat County machines are 100% secure, 100% accurate, and they hold zero vulnerabilities. Now, why would I do this? Because I read the Dominion contract several times, copious notes. The Dominion contract expires on June 30th 2021 here in Siskiyou County. People are coming to me this round. So I got the contract. And uh, first of all, the equipment is leased. It's not owned. The software is licensed. The firmware is licensed. What's firmware? Uh, Software embedded into a microchip. Okay? And no one can maintain and look inside this machine except Dominion and their service reps, who also get to show up once a year to, quote-unquote, maintain or, quote-unquote, upgrade the machines. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So, uh, you know, maybe two weeks before the election. Okay. So, so, um, by contract, the county cannot look into these machines. And if even somebody is thinking about looking inside the machines by contract, the county election official has to notify Dominion, hey, somebody wants to look at your software. And uh, there are third parties. There's third-party components, third-party software, even third-party subroutines. And uh, who are these third parties? Who is it? Where do these components come from? Maybe China, maybe Russia, maybe... Iran, I don't know where they came from. We don't know. It's not listed. We don't know where the, all the components come from. And Dominion so, is currently in 28 states. I don't trust Dominion at all. I don't trust Dominion, and I think one of the major issues of 2024 for the presidency, and um, I'm, I'm praying Trump decides to throw his hat in the race, and I know if he does, uh, one of the issues that he has mentioned addressing is you know um, getting to a, a point in time of, of getting rid of Dominion as as a whole entity. Um, Dominions proved that uh, you know a lot of them were very unreliable in the 2020 rig, and a lot of them contributed to allowing the rig to happen. And they're only in 28 states. 
Uh, we have 50 states altogether. Um, you know, I'm definitely for the abolition of Dominion. What say you, Robert? What say you, Kelly, about the abolition well, of Dominion? I, gotta, I really want to. I really want to. I, I just, just stop right there, please, please. I'm not trying to be rude. Um, Dominion is in the habit of suing people that are disparaging them. Oh, yeah, so certainly. That's say, exactly what's going on. They're, try, well, yeah, they're trying to make them afraid. You, oh, I don't want to get sued, so I better drop this. So I've worded these petitions extremely carefully, and I've, I've been very careful how I communicate. Um, but let me finish about the contract. Um, per this contract, Siskiyou County is required to hold harmless dominion and indemnify them for any problems. For example, let's suppose dominion put a modem in, and they had the best uh, computer security experts on the planet working for them with the greatest, latest technology. But let's suppose Dominion got beat. They got beat by a hacker. All right? The county not only holds them harmless, indemnifies Dominion, the county also still has to pay them. So this contract is very frightening. We're trying to renew it. And, and Robert had, had some thoughts. I just wanted to – because I want to get more into this. The other petition is, is interesting too. But – uh, Robert, what you know? What's your thoughts on uh... thoughts on what? Well, vote counting machines, et cetera. Oh yeah, yeah. Definitely gonna have to be be, be careful, you know, and, and with with the wording, yeah. Because with the Dominion, yeah. The, I mean, they have been suing like news organizations that have backed down, uh, backed down from them. So yeah, that's that's certainly going to be. Important to do, but you know. So I mean, I, you definitely would want to send it out and get some feelers from some folks prior. I mean, I'll even say you might want to, if you have any lawyer, uh, you know, or attorney friends, you may want to get their advice before sending that that out. Well, but what say you guys in general about the abolition of uh, Dominion? Being that they played a big role, and it's been proven they played a big role in the count and in, in allowing the rig uh, going forward, especially for 2024. Well, it's not just Dominion, Joseph. <clears throat> I mean, imagine World War One, and there I am in the trenches. Okay, that's it's not just Dominion. It's ESNS, it's Heart Civic, they count over 95% of America's votes. They're the big three. And uh, so this is, it's not just Dominion. And um, McAfee, who did the McAfee antivirus, uh, he said there's no computer that can be made secure. A local computer tech repairs computers and stuff. He said there's no way they can be made secure. DEFCON always hacks into them. But anyway, but let me, I want to go ahead and read these two petitions. One guy, because I'm putting him around town. It's a small town. You get to know people. And Hey, can you uh, put this on the counter? Yeah, sure. So one guy, he sells pipe fitting equipment and logging equipment. And he's like, we've already talked about it. But he's like, he says to one of his customers, hey, hey, you guys, just find this. What's it about? I explained, da, 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 da. And he's like, oh, my gosh, yeah. He's signing it as quick as he can. And the other one, too. So here's the first one is. Uh, petition to the Siskiyou County Supervisors. And this is a tool, folks. I'm not telling you this so you can sign the petition. 
I'm telling you this because it's a tool. There are other people listening that want to use this tool. That's great. Robert has my info. Um, all right, petition to the Siskiyou County Supervisors. We, the undersigned, request that the Siskiyou County Supervisors appoint a supervisor committee to subpoena any and all Dominion vote counting software, firmware, hardware, documents, and appurtenances to prove to the residents of Siskiyou County that the Dominion vote counting machines are A, 100% secure, B, 100% accurate, C, hold zero vulnerabilities. Said resolution shall contain a provision for retaining a computer security expert team. After the investigation, a report is released to the public. Until said report is released, we the undersigned, and this is bold, we the undersigned do not want the Siskiyou County supervisors to renew the Dominion contract. No contract or funding shall be let or appropriated to a different vote counting vendor until the new vendor is similarly scrutinized by the supervisor committee. Last sentence. We are done with, quote, unquote, take my word for it. Now, the supervisor committee, that's the end of the petition, um, but the supervisor committee has enormous power pursuant to California Government Code, Section 25,170 onward, and their, their subpoena power is backed by a judge. So that is one, but the other one is married to it in the sense of this is uh, this, I get a kick out of this one. <clears throat> okay. Another petition to the Siskiyou County Supervisors. We the understand. Oh yeah. Oops, sorry. I'm reading a second copy. All right. Uh, what I've done is I've looked at how can we put Dominion in a position to do business with us to renew the contract. We have to sign a statement under penalty of perjury that there is no modems in the vote counting machines of Siskiyou County. So here's a petition wording. We, the undersigned, petition that Dominion top officers sign a declaration that under the penalty of perjury, the Dominion <clears throat> vote counting machines do not have a modem. See attached example declaration. <clears throat> By signing this petition, I also believe that if Dominion top officers do not sign the attached declaration, then Siskiyou County should not renew the Dominion contract, which expires on June 30th, 2021. So you turn the page. What is this? Uh, here's an example letter from the county. Uh, a county official, be it uh, the election clerk, be it legal counsel, could be it uh, the supervisors could go ahead and send a forward letter. You know, before Siskiyou County renews the Siskiyou County Dominion contract for leasing again, the Dominion vote counting machines and systems, we need the following declaration signed by the top officers of Dominion Corporation. Please sign and send to the authorities of Siskiyou County within 10 days of receipt of this letter. And all the authorities are listed, including the district attorney and the sheriff's department. So here's the example. <clears throat> it's an example Dominion Declaration. I willingly declare under penalty of perjury of the laws of the state of California the following. One, there are no modems nor, nor a remote access devices in any Dominion vote counting machines in Siskiyou County, California. There are no modems nor remote access devices in any Dominion vote tabulating systems in Siskiyou County, California. There are no software or firmware codes for invoking the activation, use, transmission, or receiving of information via modems or remote access devices in any Dominion vote counting machines in Siskiyou County, California. As, uh, for example, PC Anywhere, which, by the way, ESNS admitted to putting PC Anywhere in their vote counting machines so it could be hacked, and PC Anywhere was actually hacked. 
there, there are no software or firmware codes invoking the activation, use, transmission, or receiving of information via modems or remote access devices. That's one, two, four. I got five, six, seven, eight. Covers all sorts of things. Okay, Bluetooth, USB stick, modem, uh, all sorts of, you know. So that is a statement that our county officials should send to Dominion. Hey, you want to do business with us? You want to renew the contract? Sign this. Send it back to us. Now, if they don't sign this under penalty of perjury, finally, the county supervisors would be like, uh, they didn't sign this document under penalty of perjury. I'm not sure we should do business with them. Exactly. Because you're putting them in the position that under penalty of perjury, there are no modems and no remote access devices. You go back over to the, the other petition I read where the supervisors set up a committee, PINA, the equipment. Oh my! If, if I was Dominion, and by the way, the founder and CEO, he's an electrical engineer, his name's John Paulus. Okay. If I was John Paulus and I put modems in his machines or any software that access as a modem, and I found out from an employee, hey, uh, you know, I'm the rep to Siskiyou County, yeah. Uh, they want us to sign a declaration of penalty perjury, and guess what? They're forming a Siskiyou County committee of supervisors, and they have full subpoena power to look at these machines. Are you going to sign this under penalty perjury? Um, uh, uh, what? I can sign a document under penalty perjury. They're going to investigate the machines anyway. Dominion might pull out of the negotiations. They might pull out. Tools. I like the petitions. I think they're well worded. I would sign it. Oh, the response I'm getting so far is 100%, even excitement. I mean, it's, it, we're tired of I – mean, we are done. We are done with take my word for it. I, we, the voters here in this county are in a position where we have to trust somebody. You go to the polls, right? You go to the polls. What's going on at the polls? Oh, hey, what do you think about these new machines? And just a typical poll worker. Oh, I trust them. Are they, do you think they're 100% secure and 100% accurate, have zero vulnerabilities? Oh, yeah, no problem. You, 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 you trust them? Oh, yeah, okay. Are you a computer programmer? No. Are you an expert in computer security? No. Do you practice computer security protocols? Uh, what's that? By this time, I've done this as a poll watcher. By this time, they're saying, well, why don't you, why don't you talk to the poll judge? Okay, Miss Poll Judge, 100, 100, zero vulnerabilities. Oh, yeah, are you a computer program? Oh, no, why don't you talk to the county election clerk? I have. So the average citizen, the voter, he, they hear from the poll worker who's not a computer programmer, hasn't examined the machines, can't examine the machines. The poll worker trusts the poll uh, – the, the voter is trusting – the poll judge, who's trusting the county election clerk, who's trusting someone else, who trusts someone else, who trusts somebody else, who trusts another party that might even be a third party. A long chain of trust, of trusting, trusting, trusting of somebody that we don't even know. That's the position that we're in. We have to trust someone who trusts someone who trusts somebody else who trusts somebody else that we don't, we don't even know. Now, Dominion may have absolutely tried their best, but you know what? You might have had a computer programmer that stuck in the back door against Dominion policy. 
and he quit, and he sells the backdoor keys to the highest bidder. It could have been a rogue employee that Dominion had no knowledge of. There's too many. It's just it's beyond frustrating. That's a lot of variables there. I could see how it could be frustrating. After you just had that spiel, my head literally spinning. I didn't think it was that complex. That's 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 a whole calamity there. Well, how does Dominion know one of their programmers didn't put in a back door? Maybe only maybe what he did. All you'd have to do, and there's like I guess like thousands of lines of code, thousands possibly 10,000 lines of code, computer code. So what this guy could have done, the rogue, yes, of course, he's committed multiple felonies, but let's suppose he goes home at night, he writes the software on his computer for the backdoor key. He writes it on his home computer, puts it on a USB stick, and he goes to... uh, uh, to work the next day, he uploads his software. It's, I'm not kidding. Copy, cut, paste, done. That's how quick it would be. That's all it would take for a rogue employee. And there are millions of dollars at stake for him. See, what do you know? Uh, Bob here only worked uh, one year at Dominion. Gosh, look at that. He's got a house in the Bahamas. He's got a yacht. He's got a nice, uh, nice condo at Aspen. And he drives a Ferrari. And he only worked for Dominion a year out of college. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. Dominion may have not had any intent whatsoever for this to happen. But how? <coughs> how possible? It is, I'm, I'm explaining to you how this is possible. I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying there are vulnerabilities. There are too many vulnerabilities. Seems to be. Or maybe they did everything perfectly right, but the hackers beat Dominion. Outside hackers, China, Russia, Wizkid from St. Louis, Missouri. Maybe maybe Dominion got beat by somebody else. Correct. We we now live in a society where cybersecurity is one of the biggest threats that we have facing uh, a lot of countries in our country today is is, uh, cybersecurity and cyber attacks. And, uh, you know, the hacking into the uh, oil company last month and hacking into the meat company and how uh, China has been, uh, you know, hacking into the CIA and, uh, you know, the FBI and... um, yeah, that's that's a really big issue that also needs to be addressed is cybersecurity and how much uh as a country we're at risk. And um geez, we've been we we we've been hacked by the Chinese for years. I mean, that's been an ongoing issue. Um and it's uh it's pretty scary. Um a lot of uh a lot of uh, damage can be done through uh cyber attacks. Um they can cripple uh, economies, uh they could cripple governments. And um, that's why it's going to be interesting to see what the uh, um, what uh, the Harris and Biden regime is going to do with their meeting with Putin. Uh, if you ask me, I honestly think uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, he knows that uh, um, Biden is uh, is very weak. Uh, he's a weak leader. He's weak. He's feeble. He's vulnerable. 
I honestly think he's uh, flexing his muscles and he's trying to test how far he can uh, he can go with um, with Biden. Uh, sad, sadly, um, this would have never happened under uh, uh, Trump's watch. And so, what's happening is appalling. And so now you have meat prices that are going to be going uh, up the roof because of this uh, cyber attack. And what's scary is you know, remember uh, all this know, stuff. I want to make a little cameo here, guys. None, none of this kind of stuff happened during the Trump administration. Let's just let's just make that plain. We have not heard of this kind of thing that happened the four years Trump was in uh, uh, Trump was in office. Robert, you are a hundred percent correct. If anything. He instilled the fear of God Almighty in our, in, in, in our enemies. He went after China. He went after Russia. He went after Iran. And he had the cojones to uh, go after North Korea, uh, which previous Republican administrations would not even dare to touch North Korea or China. And he had the cojones to go out there and, you know, Trump was Trump, and, and, and America loved it. I mean, they literally had our, our, our boldest enemies uh, with the fear of God Almighty in them. He eliminated the ISIS caliphate, uh, which was created by the Obama-Biden um, uh, regime uh, when Obama was president. Um, so – and what many people forget is that President Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize – and he signed four historic, four historic uh, Middle East peace agreements. And lo and behold, uh, just a little bit after the first hundred days of the Harris-Biden regime, there's already chaos again in the Middle East. It's like everything right. Trump did to make the world a more stable uh, region, um, to eliminate our enemies like the ISIS caliphate. To put America first again for the very first time in a long time. Uh, everything he did, uh, the the Democrats want to undo. Um, he could have come up with the cure for cancer and AIDS, and they would go out there tomorrow, and uh, the, that puppet Biden would say, oh, no, 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 this is a hoax. Uh, those vaccines won't cure our cancer and AIDS, even though all the studies have proven that. No, 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 we got to do the opposite. So it, it, it's kind of you know, ironic, I always ask my friends, what if Trump did play reverse psychology? And what if he did the opposite? What if he said, uh, we can't build a wall? I, I guarantee you the Harris-Biden regime would do the exact opposite. No, we need to build the wall. Why? Because Trump said we, can't, we shouldn't build the wall, so now we should. Uh, you know what I mean? What if Trump said uh, we should not be energy independent? They would have did the opposite just to spite him. But it would have benefited us, you know. Uh, so Biden would go, no, 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 we need to be energy independent, you know. So whatever Trump would say or do, they're going to do the opposite, the exact opposite, which is sickening to my stomach. I mean, you know, um, and, and, and what they want is the destruction of, of, of our constitutional republic because everything Trump did and implemented and stood for he stood for America exceptionalism. He stood for, you know, it's time to put Americans first. How is it that we are the richest country in the world, we have the greatest military in the world, and yet our veterans come home, they're spat on, they're disrespected, um, the resources in the VA are very limited, 
a lot of the Vietnam Vietnam veterans wound up homeless in the streets, and they died. They 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 spilled blood for our country, and yet we're giving priorities to illegal immigrants. And I'm talking about illegal immigrants. This is not the America that Trump fought for. And Robert, you hit the nail on the head. None of the shenanigans happened in the four years Donald Trump was president. They wouldn't dare. The only reason why Iran, Russia, North Korea, and China are emboldened is because they realize that Biden is probably the most vulnerable president in our constitutional republic's history. And they see that, and they're smelling the blood in the water like sharks. And they're, talking, and they're, and they're taking advantage, timing of it. And I'll defer back to you. Well, one thing I want to briefly touch on, um, because unfortunately we are, you know, running on close, uh, for the uh, evening, you mentioned earlier, you know, about Trump running. I really hope he does. And this uh, article about the, uh, this next person, I hope ends up being his running mate and perhaps uh, president one day. Um, as uh, an article, and this is you can find at the Bard's Logic newsroom at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. I'm sure you guys heard at least a little bit about this. Um, is that is uh, Ron DeSantis. We all know who he is. Uh, Fauci's uh, purported rule with gain-of-function research absolutely needs to be fully investigated. We just got a lot of uh, information coming out today about these emails, uh, these Fauci emails. But uh, this article says, Jacksonville, Florida, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, future uh, president of the United States. I, I added that one in. <laughs> I added the future president of the United States in there. But because uh, I think after Trump, he, he he may very well be a good one to, to be in there. But anyway, the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis believes Dr. Fauci's purported role in gain-of-function research should absolutely be investigated and noted that the White House medical advisor often provides contradictory information speaking to Breitbart News on Tuesday following the signing of a bill protecting girl and women's sports. When asked about Fauci's frequent flip-flops, uh, from one dismissing a need for masks and later supporting double masking to pivoting on the origins of the Chinese coronavirus. DeSantis told Breitbart News that people will likely not look kindly on the way Fauci conducted himself throughout the pandemic. Quote, I think what people will do when the politics settle down and people can look back, they will look back and say, if you have a situation like this in the future, the way Fauci handled himself and did it, that's what you could not do, DeSantis said. Uh, the fact of the matter is this guy is doing so many interviews, he's indulging all these hypotheticals. He gives contradictory information, and when you're uh, messaging on public health, that is fatal to what you're trying to accomplish. What you want to do is have one or two key things that you just keep driving that message home to the public, and you don't change and you don't flip-flop. And it says, uh, and instead of oh, the flip-flop, and instead I think it's been something where, you know, you can look back and look at what he says one month to the next and this and that, and the data is really not changing. Because while people were hungry for data in the early months of pandemic, the census said the data has been pretty clear on all these issues last summer. And then the article just, uh, you know, continues on here. But um, you can read all of it again at the www.bardslogic, 
politicaltalk.com at the newsroom page. And now talking about, uh, you know, kind of in, in part with the, uh, the information coming out today, it says, uh, and I'm, I'm skipping down the article, it says about the, um, the gain of function. He says, I do think his rule with this gain-of-function research is something that absolutely needs to be fully investigated and vetted in what U.S. money that he or any of his colleagues may have sent over to this Wuhan lab. And then he obviously should validate the lab that it, the virus leaked from that lab, he said, calling it the most plausible explanation at this point. You know, it probably would be the most plausible last year, too, although people like Fauci were saying it's natural. They did not have information to say, it was, you know, so again, anyway, going down, it's, you know, so they talk about, you know, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases uh, had, has admitted that the uh, foundation funded the Wuhan lab, although he continues denying the gain of function support, you know, with the new emails coming out that are pointing, uh, pointing to fingers, that this very well may did occur. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot going on with, with this, and I think there's going to be a hell of a lot more to come. Uh, so, I mean, have either of you guys heard, you know, about those emails uh, today about, uh, about that? I have, and the emails do validate and do confirm that not only did he uh, help to fund uh, certain experiments that were done in the Wuhan lab, that he also had knowledge of COVID-19 being a potential threat by certain whistleblowers. And I've always maintained on this show that one of Trump's biggest mistakes of his presidency was ever putting Fauci at the forefront of the coronavirus task force and was ever uh, – his biggest mistake was uh, putting him in charge and shutting down the national economy based on what Fauci said. Fauci has proven to be the biggest fraud. He should be fired. Uh, Senator Rand Paul came on to Fox today also saying he should, he should be fired. Uh, but if anything, um, Trump made the right call in January when he got wind of COVID-19. And he implemented the ban on China, which the Democrats hit him left and right, calling him xenophobic and racist. And I find it ironic that at that time, uh, it was the Chinese New Year. And Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco and Bill de Blasio in New York said, oh, this COVID-19 is not a threat. Even if it hit our shores, we could handle it. Uh, this is just fear-mongering coming outside of the White House. Uh, let us be New Yorkers. Let us be Californians. Let's go out and embrace the Chinese New Year. Yes, the Dems actually said that. And then a few months later, they try to capitulate and walk it back and put the whole blame on the Trump administration. But the real truth mm -hmm. is, if this would have happened under any previous president, we would be in a modern-day depression today, meaning that Trump handled this better than I don't think anyone could have ever handled it as well as Trump did. The calls and the tough calls that he made and the directions – of reopening our economies and encouraging that, and the policies that he implemented uh, greatly saved us from falling into a modern-day depression. And so many Democrats like to hit him hard and say, well, it happened under his watch. True, it did, but they failed to give him credit for 
the policies he implemented that avoided a modern-day depression. Well, I'd tell you what, two things. One, I got a, another short article here um, that I'll, I'll go through. And this, again, you can find on the website at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. You go to the newsroom page. Uh, and, you know, you can get uh, subscribed to the newsroom. You only get an email once, uh, once a week. So you're not going to get inundated with emails. It's going to tell you when the uh, – the newsroom page uh, is updated. Again, that's only once a week, so subscribe. Um, and also, of course, uh, follow us here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, that would be appreciated uh, as well. And, again, that's only once – the show's only once a week uh, at this point. You'll only get, you know, once a week uh, updates on, you know, and emails on coming in the show. But it says, uh, former uh, FDA Commissioner Scott Golub told CBS News that China has evidence to determine whether COVID-19 originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. When asked if China knew if COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan lab, uh, Gottlieb responded, they would know the answer to the question because they would have blood samples from the workers in the lab. And that the evidence that they haven't made public will have continued if, in fact, the blood samples show that a high prevalence of people in the lab have been exposed to the virus. That's pretty definitive proof that this coursed through that lab. And they would also have the samples from the time they were first drawn, which was the time they had those illnesses. There's no question that they had an outbreak of an illness in the lab that they would have done routine blood samples in the lab. That's just normal controls in the lab of that quality. So they would have had that information. Gilev also pointed out in an interview that these kind of lab leaks happen all the time. The last known outbreak that resulted from a lab leak in China was originally hidden by China until journalists proved its origin. And then it just uh, – the article continues on. So again, if you want to read the rest of it, go to the Bards Logic website at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com and go to the uh, Bards Logic newsroom. Now, of course, you guys probably also heard that there is a new bird flu coming out of China. And let me tell you, if, if that is true, and they get, have another virus come out of China, and let's say that goes to another pandemic now that COVID seems to be winding down. When is the, my question is to not just the United States, but my question is to the rest of the world, when are we going to hold China accountable? When is that going to So, I mean, seriously, this other virus comes out, this, this bird flu or whatever, and let's say people start, you know, just start having the same effect of COVID. I mean, what, what are we going to do? I mean, what, what are we to do with China? I mean, we can't just nuke the entire country so no more viruses, deadly viruses come out. We can't do that, but something's going to have to be done. Uh, no, no, I agree. Um, you know, we didn't get a lot of support from our so-called allies uh, when this uh, COVID-19 first uh, broke out. 
And uh, sadly, for a lot of our allies, we always have to be the one to lead by example. They always wait to see what America is going to do first, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Um, I would hope and I pray fervently that another uh, virus doesn't come out of China because I don't think we'd I think we'd be in a lot of trouble because uh, President Trump is not calling the shots here. Um, I don't think the Harris-Ben-Biden regime would be even know what to do with, with something of that magnitude. Uh, but I think it's very important for whoever is running for the pres- presidency in 2024 is to uh, explain to the American people with substance exactly what they plan to do to sanction China and hold China accountable uh, for having created this virus and for uh, and for failure of being transparent about it, for failing to reach out to the global community and let them know that this virus came out of this lab and they wanted to make sure that it did not spread to other countries. And I definitely think China needs to be held accountable. The world needs to hold China accountable. Um, and it needs to be done through actions, not through words. Well, yeah, I mean, we need to start shutting down the, you know, shutting these labs down or, or something. Uh, and and this should be something that's not just a United States, uh, you know, response. This should be a, a world response. I mean, we're talking about, you know, India and Israel and, and Europe. And, and you know what I, I found? I was thinking about this today. And... One thing I – I mean, maybe I just missed it, but let me ask you guys. Uh, when we talked about COVID, they talked about COVID deaths in Europe, COVID deaths in Asia, you know, COVID deaths, you know, in China, of course. Well, that's – but you know what I mean. Um, I didn't hear a lot of talk about how COVID was – how COVID was faring in Russia, I really never – I don't recall hearing a lot of a lot about the death uh, caused by COVID in Russia. I mean, of course, they might have just been hiding their numbers. But, I mean, I, I just find a, a total lack of information about that. I mean, at least hearing about it, interesting. I mean, I don't ever remember saying, oh, well, you know, because you've heard, you know, all the Taiwan and Japan and, you know – of course, Europe and India, but I, I really didn't hear about them doing a lot of, you know, death counts over in Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin is doing a very good job of making sure that information is not being released. He has an iron fist grip on the, on Russia. We all know that he's a dictator. He's not a uh, legitimate president. Um, he was not – he was – and the sad part is, in '99, he was democratically elected, but then uh, he, you know, pivoted to uh, enacting dictatorial powers, and he's pretty much as a dictator and a tyrant. However, there was an interesting article that came out a couple of weeks ago, and this is really odd because the leader of North Korea actually came out and said that his people are in a lot of trouble because of COVID. Um, I'm going to try to see if I could pull that article. It was from um, Newsbreak. Um, if I could still find it, and if I can, I'll, I'll read it on the show next week. But I found it really interesting how the most isolated country in the world um, 
you know, had that type of intel on, on the leader of North Korea actually admitting that and how with Russia it's the polar opposite. Uh, obviously, I, get, I think Vladimir Putin's doing a pretty good job of making sure a certain intel doesn't uh, leave that country um, so that we're not aware of it. Um, but it just wouldn't make any sense that Russia would just be immune to COVID, that they, they would be the only country in the world that's also not experiencing uh, – you know, COVID deaths, that would be really, really highly improbable. Not impossible, but to me, it would be highly improbable that um, they would be the only country that can say we're not experiencing any uh, deaths or um, any economical um, crippling because of it. Did you get cut off there, uh, Joseph? Oh, no, 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 not at all. No, um, I was no. going to defer back to you on that. that. Those were my thoughts. I do apologize, and I'll, I'll defer back to you. Yeah, so I'm just, uh, you know, like, like this one thing on, on Twitter here is what I don't understand is, is, you know, Alexandra Chalupa, right? You know, I mean, she sounds like, I mean, she's a Mexican meal, but um, – you know, I, I find it interesting that all these liberals are still railing on uh, on Putin in Russia, and they show like absolutely no concern about China. It's, it's absolutely baffling. I honestly think um, that it's probably a contest of powers between Russia and China, as Russia and China are evolving as. Uh, two major superpowers, and I think this is uh, probably uh, um, a stalemate here, and I think uh, Russia cannot stand the Chinese, and the Chinese cannot stand Russia for one reason. They both are seeking the same outcome, world dominance, and there's only one slot open for world dominance, and uh, when many countries are quenching uh, a thirst for world dominance and they can have a lot of uh, rivalries and I think that's what's happening between uh, Russia and, and, and China as we speak yeah I, I want to interject here um, China I would agree with you and they've done it a little smarter than America has Great Britain was the imperialistic king nation of the uh, past the sun never set on the British Empire in the 1800s and so even uh, FDR during World War II had a dinner in the White House. FDR's son was there to witness this. FDR told Winston Churchill, I don't like British imperialism. And Winston Churchill got up from the table, left dinner. And, of course, this is during intense times in, our, in the world history. So imperialism is nothing new. Chinese are a little more um, polite, if you will, uh, compared to America. The, the Chinese are trying to work with people, particularly in Africa, to obtain all sorts of mineral rights and uh, a win-win situation. Yeah, we've got some win-win corporations and other things like that. But anyway, Russia – I don't think Russia is, out, is, is bent on world conquest. I, I don't really see that. Now, we do have a parallel historical example of two countries wanting to conquer the world. 
course, Adolf Hitler wanted to conquer the world for the Third Reich for a thousand years. Yes, conquer the world for a thousand years. Well, sorry, that failed because, well, you can't go to war again because three Reichs are out. But Germany, Germany wanted to conquer the world for the Third Reich. Japan wanted to conquer the world for the em- emperor. So you got two people competing, and Mussolini's caught in the middle of Italy. But you got two two countries competing for world dominance, and guess what? They both can't be right. And my gut feeling is Russia is allying with China. Yes, because it's in their best in- economic interest. Now Trump, like I like how he would. He probably just called up Trump, or Trump probably called up Putin. But hey, you know, can we work something out as far as uh, economics and <clears throat> win-win? Because <clears throat> in real estate, that is the constant theme: win-win, win-win, win-win. And creative problem-solving is probably your most important skill in real estate. And so, win-win. There you go. Putin, hey, what do you think about this and that? And can we work together for better economics? China, eh, you guys, nope, sorry, tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. So I'm not a Russian expert per se, but I, uh, that is my man-on-the-street kind of opinion. I, I just don't think Russia is bent on world domination. I think they're just trying to survive. They want to get their pipelines into Europe. Um, you know, that helps their economy enormously. So I, I'm, I'm not – did you know Russia was our ally in World War One? And World War Two. Did you know that during the Civil War, the Russians uh, parked their um, sailing ships in San Francisco as a threat to the British? Because during our Civil War, the British saw that we were weak and they were going to try it for a, another time. You got the War of 1812, and and without these the Russian Navy, um, England may have invaded during our Civil War. So I, I, I really – I want to lean on Russia's more of an ally, particularly because of Trump and having communications. So I just, I just want to throw that out. Well, yeah, and then I, – I, I, I disagree. I do think that uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, looking to restore Russia back to what, what it used to be under the Soviet Union, um, under uh, world domination and conquest. I do believe uh, World War II's uh, – the Allies' biggest mistake was not realizing that Russia was our silent enemy. And that we should have uh, did a lot more to maybe not have been so close of an ally to uh, Russia during World War II. And we did pay the price of enduring um, over 40 years of a Cold War with them and the threats of them uh, creating a World War III scenario. But Vladimir Putin has proven time and time after again that uh, he wants uh, Russia to go back to being the way that it was uh, under the Soviet Union in the regards of uh, world domination and conquest. And um, I don't think uh, the Chinese and the Russians would really have much in common. Um, There could only be one uh, major world power. And uh, 
Hitler's biggest mistake was that he had uh, the Japanese as an ally, but he didn't use them strategically as an ally in the war. They were both allies, but they didn't utilize each other uh, to collaborate in uh, world dominance, and that was a big mistake. However, the plan was that uh, Hitler realized that it was impossible for him to dominate the entire world, so the agreement was uh, the uh, Japanese would uh, conquest Asia and the Pacific and uh, Mussolini and um, Nazi Germany would uh, take over all of Europe and um, uh, South America and the rest of the world in that regard. And um, and so, yeah, many people don't realize that uh, even though uh, they were strong allies, they didn't use each other uh, militarily and strategically when they could have uh, to help uh, the axis of evil uh, to you know, uh, conquer the world and, and the dominance of the world. Also, another big thing was uh, Adolf Hitler uh, had a really bad habit of sleeping in. And um, uh, on, on D-Day, uh, in, uh, on the Battle of Normandy, uh, his generals tried to wake him up early in the morning to alert them that the Americans and the Allies were attacking and he would yell at his generals, don't don't wake me up until I get up at 12. And uh, so, yeah, he um, – I don't think he had all his faculties in place, and um, it did hurt uh, the Third Reich uh, that uh, you know he could not be bothered or disturbed even if it was involving important uh, military uh, actions. And so, yeah, so a lot of things that people know about Hitler, and that happened under his, uh, his watch with his generals. Did you know? I'm a, I'm a history buff. A couple things. Did you know? Did you know that uh, Stalin and Hitler agreed to both in, invade Poland, and then the Russians also invaded. Um, I want to say Norway or the Netherlands, and that was kind of a forgotten thing. And then kind of it stopped. The reason Stalin. <laughs> Excuse me. The reason Stalin wanted to invade Poland is because he didn't trust Adolf Hitler. He didn't trust Winston Churchill either. <laughs> Stalin was a tough uh, case to sell. But Stalin was thinking, you know what? If we go ahead and invade Poland, and we get, we take half, the Germans take half. If the Germans try to invade Russia, they have to start with Poland, which we've already conquered. Very Fascinating. So then you have Patton, General Patton, of course, big hero. He wanted to he and he was talking to congressmen. He's like, can we? Um, he wanted to take the troops in Europe and go invade and conquer Moscow because he saw Patton saw what was coming. Um, there's all sorts of little tidbits in the. I believe the number one reason why Adolf Hitler lost the war was because of arrogance. He was making decisions that he had no idea. He wasn't listening to his consultants. The Germans couldn't make field calls uh, in certain things. Um, they had to always talk to the higher up. The Americans would quickly they would quickly uh, make the field calls, especially communicate with their commanders, 
but they were allowed to make field calls on the ground. Um, and the Germans had so much technology, it was amazing. They had over 1,500 of the 282s, the twin jet engine fighter. They had that many at the end of the war. And uh, but we eventually won the air war, which was getting ready for D-Day. All sorts of factors, um, arrogance. The Germans didn't think we ever cracked their code. The Allies, uh, particularly the uh, at Bletchley Park in England, there was a genius who made a computer, and uh, they, we, we cracked the German code. We also cracked the Japanese code, but both countries were so arrogant, they didn't think we were smart enough to crack their code. So we knew what they were doing. They knew. We knew, we knew, and they didn't know that we knew, which is really important with it, with intelligence and strategy, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I can go on with all sorts of interesting facts, but I think I think Putin is mostly concerned about feeding his people. What's a, well, there you go. You got two history buffs here. You got two history buffs. I love history, and Kelly loves history. So there you go. But yeah, well, here's another piece of history. That two things. One, the uh, Ireland was actually, or the Irish really, not Ireland as a, as a government, but you know, the Irish was actually on the side of Germany in World War One, um, back in uh, 1918. They were 1916. They're on the uh, they're on the side of the people were at least were on the side of the Germans uh, because of the English occupation of Ireland. Uh, but anyway, uh, at, but also during World War One, which I don't know if a lot of people know this, is that uh, in the early years of the war before the United States got in, there was actually equal support. In the United States, to join just as much support for us to join Germany as it was for us to join England. I'm not talking about the American people. Um, so there was actually people in America. Uh, again, it was kind of split 50-50. He wanted us to join Germany. Uh, but anyway, he, just a little prognostication, and I seriously hope that I'm wrong. But if there is ever a World War III. And unfortunately, I do think that there's still a possibility of it. Here's here's who I think we're going to be up against. I do think China, I do think China and Russia will be the two major. Just like in, you know, in World War II, the major allies were Germany and Japan, and then yet, as you said, Italy. Now I see uh, something similar. If there's ever a World War III, and I really do see China and I, uh, China and and Russia being the two major powers that actually come together, and I think their smaller power that would come on board is going to be Iran. So I think you're going to see an Iran. You know, if there's a World War III, I think you're going to see a China. I think you're. I think you're going to see a, a China, Russia, Iran, axis of evil, if you guess you want to call it. Um, but and I, I'll, I'm also going to throw in North Korea in there, uh, but maybe maybe not. But I think that there is a, another war like that. I think those are going to be the the, the the nations that are coming together that is going to go against the West. 
I actually think if that is the case, I think uh, Germany would definitely be on our side. Britain would be on our side. Ireland would be on our side. The French would be on our side. So it would be like complete polar opposites of World War II where Germany would actually be on our side. Well, yeah, and I see Australia, Israel, of course. Um, it would be, it would, it, it could be devastating, but I mean, I think if that, I think that's what it would be if there was ever a world war. Well, let me, let me throw some other factors into this whole mix. Um, Egypt would probably join us because Israel and Egypt have an awful lot of trade, and Egypt depends upon Israel. And it's interesting how the book of Revelations, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament prophets who are talking about the end times, Egypt will actually uh, be honored by God. It's fascinating. But you have a whole list of, with World War III from the, the Bible, you have Cush and Seba, and uh, uh, some say Turkey, some say Moscow. Some people, there's a disagreement because. Some say, oh, Magog is, is Germany. Others are saying, no, Magog is Turkey. I'm not Germany. Russia. Russia is Magog. Moscow is the capital. Straight north. It's not quite straight north. Turkey is straight north from Israel, from the north. And so you've got these other nations. Now, India is a wild card. India is very important in World War Three. In World War II... The Nazis had control of India for a short time. The British, the British actually, it was a British colony. They, you know, did their conquering thing, uh, imperialism for India. But finally, uh, India became free after World War II. That is why Winston Churchill did not get reelected as the prime minister because he wouldn't let India be free. And the whole nation of Great Britain is like, you know what? Let's let India be free. Oh, guess what? India became free. But during World War II, the Nazis had temporarily um, did a coup d'etat with a bunch of Indian people, and the British were like, oh, my gosh. No, 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 no. We got we to get – and so the British went and reconquered India, you know, essentially the government. And they the, – India would have been able to spend, send a million men over across Europe, and we would have been defeated. There, in World War II, there's so many amazing, amazing close calls. If we would have waited six months to invade, we may have lost the war. And we started on June 6, 1944. But there's so many close calls, so many unique things that happened in war. And China was our ally in World War II. Japan was also our ally in World War I. Um, there was Gallipoli, which... Um, Winston Churchill totally screwed up the invasion in the Mediterranean. That's a whole other story. But so it, all these different nations, you put them all together, it's mind blowing if there ever is a World War Three. And uh, all sorts of the more you study it, the more it's just that's absolutely fascinating. My son's even becoming a history buff. So, yeah, all, uh, you know. Okay, World War III, we'd have Canada, U.S., Australia, probably Mexico, probably Brazil. Uh, yeah, however, but, I mean, but these, do, these, do these guys have enough militaries to do it? Military to do anything, though? Well, 
which would you rather have, a team of a thousand or or ten teams of a hundred? I mean, Australia, Canada, the Canadians, they were the third. Let's see, on the Allied side, I believe it was the Canadians were the third. What's the fourth? Fourth, fourth. Uh, they were the fourth. There was the British, United States, uh, Russia, and Canada. Canada was number four in, in supplying troops. They were, I think, it was either gold or sword on the invasion day that can, Canadians took. They didn't have much resistance there, but Russia, as an ally, oh my gosh, early parts of the war, when they went and in, in, the, the Nazis went up to Stalingrad, um, it was a sixteen to one kill ratio, sixteen Russians to one German. Because of Germany's high tech at the time, um, and the whole Blitzkrieg, by the way, it was invented by a British officer. <laughs> because you know the British were the ones that came out with tanks in World War One, which seemed to end the trench stalemate. And then the the general that did this says, "Oh, we can do this thing called the well, he didn't call it Blitzkrieg. That's a German word, but basically, artillery, tanks, planes. You move really fast, so fast that the enemy doesn't even know what's going on." That's why Belgium fell so quickly, and then France, because it just moved so fast. The marginal line, they went around it, went through the Black Forest. The French are like, oh, they'll never get through the Black Forest. No, the Germans got through the Black Forest, went around the marginal line. And then the, the southern third of France was allowed to be neutral. It wasn't German-occupied. That was the term of the uh, peace treaty when they conquered France. And it's bizarre how World War II fanned out. So, you know, September 1st, 1939, they invaded Poland. Actually, annexed Austria before that. The Japanese started World War II, by the way. Uh, this is, uh, I think, 36 to 37. They invaded China, and we were helping China right and left and left and right. We helped them set up a republic. They couldn't keep it because of corruption, and then you have Mao, and the communists took over. But that's, you know, we were strong allies with the Chinese. So you you go back to Mussolini. He's like, oh yeah, you know, um, I think this is a good idea. He, I, I think it was him that coined the term "axis of powers." There is there is a wheel of change with from the Germans to which around this axis, I believe we will succeed. That's how they came up with the name "axis powers." So Mussolini um, after. Um, Italy was getting hit before we had D-Day on the Normandy shore, and the um, our, our our planes were bombing uh, Italy like crazy to the point that the legislature of Italy impeached and removed Mussolini and his wife. He was captured, and people hung him and his wife, and the, the bodies lay. And the bodies were still hung for a week, and their bodies were mutilated beyond recognition. But when Italy fell by peace treaty, they appointed – we worked it out. Our general worked it out with, with their legislature, the Italian legislature, and then the, the Italian legislature appointed a general to be the temporary president. Well, you know what happened? The Germans invaded Italy <laughs> after Italy surrendered. Germany invaded Italy, and so an awful lot of the fighting in Italy was actually against the Germans. It's like the Germans were like, well, 
uh, thank you for conquering the Greek Isles and all sorts of things in the Mediterranean. And oh, now we're going to conquer you because you surrendered. <laughs> this is gangster tactics. It, it's terrible. Um, and then Patton was driving people from Italy into Europe, and da 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 da. And, and then the Russians, the Russians. Um, Stalin was not happy with. Not happy. He was not happy with Winston Churchill. Wasn't happy. Couldn't trust either. The, the all three had a, a strained relationship. This is on Timeline. It's a British documentary channel. It's about fascinating stuff about World War II. So, um, you know, uh, you had Stalin. You had Hitler. You had I'm sorry. You had Stalin, um, Winston Churchill, and FDR, and they met at Malta. And then the big Malta conference started started talking about how they would divvy up Europe after the war, and so they, they're having these these discussions and debates. But somehow they were able to put enough angst aside and get things done. But the Russians had enormous losses in soldiers, enormous losses. And one of their biggest advantages was a T thirty four tank, which they were manufacturing in Siberia. And so the Germans were like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going we're gonna to take Russia pretty quick. And then all of a sudden these T-34 tanks come about, which were very reliable, very simple to manufacture, just incredible. Hey, Kelly. As far as as one, yeah, we could probably just spend another hour doing more history stuff, but unfortunately we do have to get things ready to close the, the show out. Um, so oh, we each got about a minute, <laughs> and then uh, i got to close things out with some updates for upcoming shows. Uh, so go ahead. Each got about thirty seconds, and I have to close things out. Go ahead, Kelly. Anyway, I, I, I love history, and that saying, "Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it." Um, I mean, when I talk about history of the founding fathers, et cetera, et cetera. When you understand the history of our country and how we were born, you understand why they wrote the Constitution because they suffered enormously under tyranny. And so those years, you know, late 1760s into 1776 until the Treaty of Peace in 1783, there was so much pain that from that pain, suffering under tyranny, Tushin and the Bill of Rights eventually emerged. And they did not forget their history, and they did not want future generations to suffer what they went through. So it's Ironic how pain in life it can bring about the precipice of change. So thanks for letting me be on, and I'll wish you all good night. Well, you know, I certainly appreciate it. Go ahead, Joseph, and I have to close things out. Uh, beautifully said, Kelly. Um, I don't have anything more to add except uh, I wish you all well, as always, and have a wonderful week. And uh, Always a pleasure to be on, and I look forward to being back on again next week. Good night. Uh, thank you very much, guys. And definitely uh, check out uh, our guest uh, website at Schultz for Congress. Uh, that's S-C-H-U-L-Z and then for Congress. Uh, check out his website. Uh, and the next week we will have uh, Mr. Joel Wood on telling us his experience on how he actually got fired from his job. Uh, for refusing to give children vaccinations. So he'll be on next week. And then uh, we are, I am working on having uh, Jim Renacci on. Uh, he ran for uh, governor uh, of Ohio. So we're looking at uh, having him in as well. Uh, still working on it. We got a good shot of having him in. 
Uh, but anyway, I will close out tonight, as I do every night, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And I want to thank everyone for coming in, and have a good night, and we will see you next time. Good night. Good night. Thank you.